Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex encounter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey, everybody. James and I are so happy to welcome our second guest, to the uh, Canadian Wargamer podcast, the Snow Lord himself, Kurt Campbell, the host of the uh, Analog Hobbies Painting Challenge. Kurt, how are you? Good, good. How are you, Mike? I'm great. It's nice to see Hi, you. Kurt. Hi, James. Kurt, the last time I saw you was passing through Regina in 2013 when I was uh, leaving the prairies. That's right. You were just about to think you're starting your uh, graduate studies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's... Uh, a long time ago, but uh, I have great memories uh, then and a year or so previously of your uh, hospitality. And uh, it's really nice to catch up with you again. And then uh, we were saying that uh, uh, we're out to Stratford 12-ish years ago to go to Hot Lead. Oh, yeah. Gosh, it would be about 16 actually around now. Uh, but yeah, I was at Hot Lead. I was uh, working in uh, I was working in Detroit for uh, Ford Motor Company. And so I lived in I lived in Windsor. And then I heard about hot lead and uh, my wife and I traveled up there, I think for two, two hot leads and really, really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, that's good. It's gotten bigger. Yeah, no, I really look forward to revisiting it again once we get out from the pall of COVID. So, yeah. yeah. How's that looking in uh, Saskatchewan? Well, um, we have a very, you know, a government that's very, uh, you know, the, the optics uh, are such that they really want to open up. So that's what they're doing. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit, a little bit uh, premature, but that's what's happening. And uh, so, yeah, you know, summer's summer's on here in Saskatchewan, so we're opening up. Yeah, are you uh, are you under the heat dome right now? We just got out from underneath it. Uh, last week was pretty pretty extreme, uh, but not as bad as what was happening with our friends in in British Columbia. Yeah, I wouldn't complain if it was coming this way. My wife and I were on a patio tonight, uh, having dinner and watching the end of the football game, and wrapped in a blanket because it was so bloody cold. So it's crazy. <laughs> For our listeners uh, who might not know uh, too much about you, Kurt, give us your wargaming biography. Um, oh. uh, yeah. Well. Um, uh, yeah, I was uh, um, born and raised here in the prairies in uh, in Saskatchewan and um, up north, north small northern town and uh, called Carrot River, Saskatchewan. And uh, like a lot of uh, a lot of people in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, I got introduced to Dungeons and Dragons through mm -hmm. friends. And through that, I found out, hey, you can actually get all of these cool little miniatures for the game. And then uh, I remember doing my first order to uh, uh, Geneva, Lake Geneva, where TSR was based at that time. Right. And getting my first lead miniatures, you know, good old pig-faced orcs um, that I was so excited to get that I, uh, I, I, was, I painted them with, you know, the nasty 
testers oils and I didn't even have brushes. I used my mom's bobby pins to put on the paint. I was so excited. <laughs> get, yeah, no primer, uh, <laughs> just paint, paint on bare metal. How, and, how old were you, Kirk? Uh, how old? I was, um, I was about 13 or 14. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. And then I was hooked. That was it. I, I just loved, I loved the whole, I, of course I love role playing. It's great. Uh, but I love the whole miniature aspect of gaming and uh, that's where that took hold. But then I, you know, uh, being up in, up in sort of a fairly secluded uh, little town in Saskatchewan, you did not a lot of gamers around there. So there's a lot of solo gaming. So I, we would travel into Prince Albert or into Saskatoon. And I would, uh, back in the day when you could get the bookcase, like uh, Avalon Hills bookcase games uh, from the Bay, you know? Um, yes, yes. Back when the Bay had a toy and game section. And I got a lot of, you know, and that's where I was introduced to uh, Advanced Squad Leader and Wooden Ships and Iron Men and P Panzer Blitz and, you know, all of the classics. Yeah. And uh, had them set up on my uh, ping pong table down in the basement. And a mom would let me do a, a solo turn uh, every night after I did my homework. I remember that distinctly, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, um, and then I moved to, when I graduated, I moved to Winnipeg and I, uh, I opened a game store with a friend of mine uh, in Winnipeg that we had for several years. Really? Uh, yeah, and so we sold, uh, you know, all the, you know, we were hardcore gaming stores, so lots of miniatures and, Lots of board games. I was 19 when we opened, you know, and wow. uh, that was fabulous. And uh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, just, you know, we met a lot of really great people in Winnipeg, um, really good gaming scene there. And I got introduced to Napoleonics at that age, 19, and that, that became sort of really my first real miniature love and still exists today. Like I still, you know, I, I love Napoleonics. What was the scale? Uh, that uh, that time it was 15s. 15s were really, you know, that was in the uh, 1986, 87. Yeah, and 15s were the hot new thing. Yeah, 15s were, you know, because everybody, you know, not everybody had the space and the money and the time for 28s. Uh, so 15s was sort of the the new kid on the block. Yeah. And so that's what I started. We just made armies twice as big. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yep. Didn't save any time at all. No. And, and in fact, you know, uh, well, except, you know, some of the, you know, and that was like the time of minifigs and that, and they were such beautiful, like they still are. They're such beautiful castings. Um, yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they were such a joy to paint and, and all of the time that you thought you would save not painting detail, you would just add in detail. I remember in grade 10 pouring over the minifigs uh, catalog though, and I wasn't entirely sure the difference between a, a chasseur and a grenadier, but I just thought they were so cool to look at. And, exactly. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's so romantic and the, the colors are just amazing. And yeah. It's yes. Just... The hats. It's all about the hats. <laughs> it's all about the hats. Yeah, yeah. your guys have some great hats, James. James, uh, yeah, James, yeah. Is, James has gone all 28 millimeter and I don't think I'll ever see him again. He's, he's just going to do Bordino in a one-to-one -one scale. But, uh... Oh, we're trying. Uh, Le Leipzig, man. Leipzig. So you're in Napoleonics. Uh, where do you go after that, Kurt? Oh, well, you know... Uh... You know, I was at that time, early twenties. It was like you're, you know, you're like a squirrel. You're going everywhere. So you know, sure. science fiction, fantasy. Yeah. That, at that time, uh, like I said, we had this game store. So we were there right at the start of 40k when 40k was released. Oh, okay. In uh, you know, I think around 86, 87 ish was around when 40k came on the scene, and that just blew everybody's minds. Right? It's just uh, it became yeah. so hugely popular. So yeah, I was in on. 
I was in on that scene. Um, and, uh, but then I went, uh, you know, I did some travel, I went to Europe, did some traveling, came back. And at the time, you know, when, when I was around 25, I decided that I should buckle down and actually, you know, do something that made money. And so I went to university and, uh, and uh, so I did my, and when I went, I was really, you know, I was, I was around 25. So I was really diligent. I just didn't want to dork around in, in school and waste a lot of cash. So I, uh, for that four years, I would cold turkey, uh, no gaming, nothing, just so I could do my studies, uh, which was excruciating. Um, but uh, <laughs> but it, was, it was good. Uh, I got through it all right. But when I came out of that and was in grad school, it came on hard. And it, my, uh, I, my graduates, uh, like my MA took about like seven years to finish because, you know, I was too busy having fun. Right. So were, were you, uh, when, when, when Games Workshop came out, were you, um, were you one of their authorized dealers as part of your business or was that? At that time, yeah, at that time, early on, there was no GW stores. Um, right. It was, it was, uh, but you they quickly, I was there at the point in which they decided they were onto something big and their, um, their minimum orders became outrageous uh, for what you had to put down to continue, you know, marketing their, their stuff. And so uh, it was that at that point that uh, I wanted to move on and do different things. My partner was this, we were both the same age, we we're in early 20s. And, uh, you know, we, we wanted to do different things. So we closed up shop and uh, it was, it was a great experience. We had it for I think we had the game store for about three or four years and it was, you know, it was fabulous. Um, made a lot of the friends that I have today are guys that I met when I owned the store and uh, you know, I, I, I'd never trade in those years, but yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a moment in time. You know, the uh, games workshop is one of those things where we all have a very strong feelings one way or the other. What, where would you put them on your scale of affections from, you know, I love them to the end or to the, they're the antichrist. Yeah, uh, I would, I would like many, I think I have a very much a love hate relationship with them. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love the fluff. I, you know, I, I still read the, I still read the novels as fun, you know, summer beach reading. I still enjoy all the space Marine stuff, the emperor, all, all that stuff I, I i adored it and i loved fantasy too i really loved the old like the old world fantasy the the whole age of sigmar thing is leaves me kind of cold but i loved the whole sort of germanic land you know renaissance lanschnecky you know yeah fa fantasy environment i i really loved it but the marketing stuff just it started making me crazy you know and uh and it still does like the the prices you know every you, you can't talk about games workshop without it devolving down into the price of you know what it costs to get into that hobby if you're wanting to if you're using gw as your entry point into the hobby yeah sense of it right as opposed to there's so many other things now which is great i love that i love gw and that it really pr proliferated the hobby it really expanded it to the youth uh, you know and i still appreciate that it's around but i think a lot of a lot of people are realizing there's a lot of other amazing games out there amazing figures that are out there uh the whole the world of 3d printing is, is this sort of exploding onto the hobby now and you know mm -hmm. i think games workshop is like many manufacturers is sort of being caught on its back foot with what's going on with that right uh, you know i have a resin printer and a, a fdm printer as well and you know I, lo I love doing that sort of stuff and the quality of some of these prints that are now starting to be generated are like they're it's amazing yeah, like I uh, just seen this uh, guy, Caballero Miniatures, right. uh, 
lovely line of Norman's. Yeah. It's like, good Lord, like the, the, the animation and the figures and the details. So yeah. We didn't see that two years ago. No, no. So you, like, and I, people were very chunky. Yes, exactly. And now they're probably coming much more finely, my finely sculpted, finely crafted. And yeah. I think the printers are, I think, still think the printers are still a little, like my mom's not going to buy one of these things and start printing off miniatures, right? It's not to the same <laughs> extent of it being like an everyday appliance. There's still a learning curve to the printers. Mm -hmm. um, they're still stinky, smelly. They, you know, they, they require a certain amount of expertise to work with, but they're coming a long way. Like even like, as James said, what's happened with it in the past, say five years is amazing. Like it's just, uh, it's, it's really changing. I think, I think games workshop will figure out how to adapt and, and ride it out though. Oh yeah. No, I mean, sure. They're like, they're, they're keeping their cult pretty, pretty entrenched. Yeah. You know, there's all these people that don't realize that there is war gaming outside of 40 K. Yeah. You know, you see these really sad tweets on social media, people you know like 40k for some reason some something about the rules or whatever or the tournament scene just really ticked them off and they hate the game now and it's like now oh, what do i do with my thousands of dollars of space marines it's like you know it's like uh there are other games to play buy a buy a 40 dollar you know set of rules or 20 dollar osprey book and go play Have yeah fun. yeah i know you're absolutely right james and the uh the, it's funny you mentioned that because just uh, last year or year before last when we when before covid was just biting in was uh we discovered through patreon uh this set of rules called grim dark oh. and they're they're basically it's basically 40k that's been reimagined um with free rules and they're they're fabulous uh they're a great set of rules and they're agnostic in that you can they, they kind of provide a toolkit that all of these models that have sort of fallen off the back end of the 40k you know they're no longer supported or there's no rules for them right in this in this environment hey you can just make up you know you they have a toolkit that you can make up the rules and you can put it on the table again and play it you know yeah, like, i hear people crying about you know there's that cool miniature that they bought you know and and four editions of the rules ago it was really cool and yeah. now i if it's even in the army list it's dead weight yeah you for know, sure and people are and I think that, for, you know empty points or wasted points yeah and i think that's what's re recurrent uh so you're seeing this resurgence of you know old hammer you know or old and hammer yeah. you know guys my like my, my, my age that are saying hey I, I love the heyday of the yeah the rules were really kind of weird and wacky and imbalanced but i love the games that they gave and so you know they're playing third edition or fourth edition fantasy and i, I think that's great i think it's great yeah yeah if you don't want to play in tournaments like yeah absolutely. whatever edition you like yep absolutely but it's a, it's the that i find i don't say it's a trouble it's the thing it's just natural with our hobby everybody's addicted to the new shiny right and right yeah yeah and i think as as you get a, a some time in the hobby, you start um, exploring smaller pathways. So Grimdark is a good example. Uh, it, you made me think of um, Ivan Sorensen, who calls himself Nordic Weasel. He has a really interesting set of rules uh, called 50, uh, the Five Parsec series, right? Which are, you know, they can they can easily be adapted to uh, the 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 Warhammer 40k universe if you want to, just as any fantasy set of rules can be adapted to Middle Earth. Sure. It just takes a little bit of imagination. Yeah. Um, but I think the Games Workshop business model is looking at people at the, you know, who are entry level to the hobby. There are typically, you know, teenagers like we were once who may not have the resin printer or the, yeah. 
yeah. the, you know, so they're just, they're going to, they're going to come into the store and buy the turnkey, you know, starter set. And that's, yeah. if there's enough of them coming through, then that keeps Games Workshop profitable. So yeah, fair enough. And I, th I think, you know, James and I, and you are all grateful for those young people who, you know, 10 years later, when they come out of university are really looking for something that we might be able to teach them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. Game Workshop will keep making money on like just on their IP, the novels, this Warhammer Plus TV, yeah, like all sure. that stuff. There's there's all kinds of people that they don't even paint miniatures, let alone play 40k, yeah. and they're into the 40k hobby. Yeah, uh -huh. and, uh, and I I still way. play uh, I still play GW stuff with uh, the new stuff like Titanicus. Like we love the yeah. new Titanicus. It's a it's a brilliant set of rules. Uh, love the models. They're hideously expensive, but I mean. Mm -hmm. The models are genius, and uh, yeah, we still get a we still get a rush out of playing GW stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, or Blood Bowl or uh, yes. Space Folk. You know, everything old is new again. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Well, I'm I'm having pangs of regret that I got rid of all my Epic 40k stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, it's beautiful stuff. I love that game. Yeah, it, it was a good. It was a solid set of rules. Yep, yep, still is. Yeah, I was going through your blog the other just to do um, my homework for this, Kurt, and I noticed. Um, a cute little epic 40k um, uh, resin model that you've done. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, probably. You know, you know what it looked like? <laughs> it looked kind of phallic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, kind of rude. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Hmm. Well, there was. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to out anybody here, but the uh, there uh, online, there's a, several guys that were sculpting and filling that void because GW no longer supports Epic. Right. Um, and so there were uh, uh, several guys online that were providing fabulous models uh, in, in both in resin and in lead, white metal, I should say, that, um, you know, that, you know, guys like us who love the 40K universe, actually the 30, like we love the 30K universe, the Horus Heresy stuff. And uh, we were getting the stuff, you know, uh, it was sort of, we called it fight club. You know, you only, you, you know, you don't, don't tell anybody else where fight club is. Right. And <laughs> very, very small group that were, uh, you know, getting these models. So that's probably one of the models that you saw. Okay. So the game, games workshop, uh, legal ninjas don't descend. And exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Just for the record, I have no idea who Kurt Campbell is. I've never yeah. talked to him before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kurt, before you joined us, James and I were talking about uh, social media uh, and about uh, uh, blogging. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of gets us to sort of the heart of what we wanted to talk about with you, which sure. is, of course, Analog Hobby. When did, that, when did Analog Hobby start as a blog? When did you start? A little over 10 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. a little over 10 years ago. 11, it must be around 11 years now. Right. Why did you start it? Um, you know what? I was... Um, I was sort of in a spot in the hobby here. I had moved to a new city and for work and I was still kind of finding my feet uh, with, uh, you know, getting friends and getting into it. And I thought, you know, I heard about this whole blogging thing and I started reading some of these other people's blogs. And I thought, this is fabulous. Like, I love this. It, it takes, like our hobby is fairly introverted uh, to begin with and then it's populated by introverted people so it gets pretty you know it's pretty gets pretty cellar dweller and to have something that completely explodes that paradigm that becomes outward facing you know that you can share you know this is this is the stuff that i'm doing 
for my hobby uh, here in, you know, small town Saskatchewan and people from, you know, from Italy or from France or UK or Australia can say, hey, I like that. Have you, have you, have you looked at this or have you read that? And, you know, the heady days, like blogging has sort of come into, a, it's kind of gone into a lower tempo now. Sure. But 10 years ago, blogging, it was, it was huge, you know, it was just, it was amazing. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it's one of the better parts of social media. I'm not a huge fan of social media, actually, um, you know, especially in the past few years of politics and what we've seen in, uh, in mm. the world. But as far as for the hobby, you know, um, I thought blogs and, and, and Twitter, uh, Instagram, all that stuff, I think it's really really democratized the hobby it's really expanded yeah it's good to get the to, to i don't know we we want to share our stuff yeah you know it's like um and our spouses are sometimes understanding and look at what we've done and go oh okay yeah um but you you can tell they're puzzled yeah yeah you know, whereas like yeah you, you do something cool and then personally when there's somebody who's painting i really i really respect you know, and then I put something up and they say something nice. Yes, I know. I'm, I just start, I just start squeeing like a teenage fan girl. Yeah. Like, oh my God. He liked my stuff. Yeah. Oh. yeah. 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 said he liked my miniature. Right. Yeah. Oh, Jack Sarge. Yeah. Like when he says, my, he, when he likes something that I painted and put up on the middle earth group, it's like, oh. Oh my God, I've been touched by God. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that, the thing that we never had before is that, like when I painted up Napoleonic stuff in, you know, in Regina or Winnipeg, there were maybe three, four, five, six guys that would know, oh, Kurt, you did you did this unit or you painted these minis. Good job, right? And it, and it was great. You know, you felt wonderful about that. But yeah. then when the blogs came out, like as James said, you put out a, oh, here's a, here's a unit of chasseurs or whatever that I've been working on, 40K stuff. And then guys from around the world are saying, "Hey, man, that's that looks great. Keep it up." And you, as you say, you just sort of squeal like a like a girl, like this is like, this is awesome. Like I just love having that affirmation that somebody out there is, um, you know, kind of you know vibing to the same stuff that you're into, right? Your blog has a really distinctive look and feel, Kurt. The, I think it's partly because you use um, what I think of as very distinctive for your work, um, the black backdrops. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of your bases are clear resins, so they really they really showcase your your brushwork, which I think is, I'd have to say, you know, I often just look at your stuff for inspiration. You're oh, well, thanks you're, very you're, much. You're a gifted painter. painter. Yeah. When did you decide on that look? That like that black backdrop look? Uh, it was actually um, we uh, my wife and I were traveling in Europe, and um, we were um, I think we were in uh, yeah in Holland. Uh, and talking about the, you know, the, how the jewelers there, like the, the guys that you know, buy and sell diamonds and, you know, all that stuff. And the jewelers, when they're, when they're putting out like a, a nice watch or a beautiful ring or something, they'll put down a black velvet piece of fabric and then they'll put the, they'll put the piece, they'll put the piece on that fabric and it just makes it pop. Right. 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 Yeah. And I went, yeah, that is it's such a nice trick because you don't get distracted by anything else. And the fact that it's on a black background, it just forces the eye. Okay, the only thing you're looking at 
is the mini, right? That's yeah. all there. That's all there is on the screen, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I, uh, so it was a, it was like a big step for me, and it really it kind of pushed my painting too, because there'd be times when I'd be taking test shots, and I go like, oh god, like I, I gotta I gotta clean this up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like taking a photograph to to spot the errors in your work, hey? Yeah, yeah, and I found the black backdrops really amplified that as well the other thing too with black is that it just it really uh the high it makes everything very high contrast right so yes yeah so it takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit of photography work but yeah i, I kind of got i got it down pat now so yeah, yeah and it really shows some of the detail like one of your moonstone minis i was looking at it this morning uh, i forget which one but it, you it has the the figure had these red eyes and you'd obviously put a lot of work into the the gradations right. of color in the eyes right. themselves. I can't remember if they were eyes or lenses or even yeah, what the hell yeah. it was, but yeah. it was very, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is your style to do sort of fewer figures better rather than to do like focus on just raw output? I, you know what, I would love to be able to paint out loads of stuff. Um, you know, and, and I, like I said, I came from a Napoleonic background, like interested in Napoleonic gaming. And I've, you know, and I've done, I've done the 28 mil Napoleonic armies and like it was, it was, I don't want to say it was, I don't want to say it was torture because I love painting them, but it took a long time uh, because I'm a slow painter. And yeah. uh, I, as I've gotten older, I've now, uh, I'm happy I got a lot of those big armies behind me because I, I far enjoy vignettes and doing um, fewer figures, but probably at a, spending more time on them, right? Yeah. Just enjoying doing the work on them. Whereas James here has, has done, I think he's made some bargain with the devil, you know, you buried your paintbrush at a crossroads or something, James, or something. So <laughs> your, your, your output is, is unbelievable these days. Are you taking, you're on amphetamines, I think. It's a wonderfully COVID empty schedule. Yeah. Um, sure. And we have dinner and watch our mystery show or whatever. And then I do the dishes and she goes upstairs and watches her whatever and quilts and I come down here and I paint for an hour or two and if you can get in half an hour to an hour and a half in every night yeah. you're banging stuff out yeah I know uh there's a good friend of mine from the UK um who uh Roundwood's world uh yes Sydney yes. Sydney, Sydney Roundwood and he's he's a very good friend of mine and um and uh, Sid he he often he's a very you know he's he's in a very high pressure professional career and so he has limited time and kids and all of the pressures of a modern lifestyle but you know uh he i know he was trying you know working around a 45 minute okay i got i'm setting up the clock here i'm gonna do this for 45 minutes and then he would do that during the painting challenge and he you know it was amazing what he could generate over three months just dedicating i'm gonna do three quarters of an hour dedicated painting time every night and, you know, it's amazing what it accrues. Like, as James said, it just, you know, it, it adds up, right? Stuff happens, right? Yeah, yeah. If you can come down and, and just do something for half an hour, yeah. for 15 minutes, you know, you, you, you just get something glued together. And then tomorrow, that glue is set and you can work on it. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. addictive because the, the night before you laid down a color or, as you say, you put something together. And then, the, like, in the next day at work, I'm like, okay, I'm... I can't wait to get home to, you know, get my chores done so I can do a, do the next stage of that project. You know, it's just yeah. sort of, a, it keeps that energy going. My wife was uh, working on a 500 piece jigsaw puzzle uh, with the grandkids today while they were over. And uh, 
she said, you know, I, I was painting at the end of the table and she said, I don't know how you have the patience for that. And I said, I don't know if you have the patience for a 500 piece jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> yeah, so right. Both have their, both have their pleasures, right? This, the idea of seeing something accruing yeah. out of your efforts. Yeah. Kurt, when did your blog start becoming the painting challenge? Maybe that we could talk a bit how that. Sure. I, uh, you know, it's a, it's around 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. We, uh, we just did, uh, we did this, just did challenge 11. So yes. yeah, it was around, around 10 years ago that it started and uh, yeah, you know, and then it sort of took on a life of its own. Okay. For those of us um, who aren't familiar, what yeah. is the analog hobbies painting challenge? Uh, it, um, it started out um, with um, the Fawcett Avenue conscripts, which is a group out of Winnipeg. One of my pals from there, uh, Dallas Ewan, he, he won one year, like you know, what, 12 or 13 years ago, he said, hey guys, let's, let's challenge each other to get some stuff done over the next couple months. And so, and it was like soup to nuts, you could paint whatever you want. And so we, you know, we, there was about, I don't know, five or six of us painting and, and I just had a blast doing that. And uh, it, it kind of was a one-off thing for, for, for us at that time. But then uh, I came back to thinking about that a year or so later and I went, you know what, I really, I really like to do this again. I was in the middle of painting like big time Napoleonics at the time. And so I said, you know what, I could really use some, um, you know, impetus to get keep going on this so maybe if I use my blog I could get some people to get in on doing this and so uh you know the first one was only again like half a dozen guys um and it was just Napoleonics right the first painting challenge was purely Napoleonics but and then you know the next year came around and the guy let's do this again and let's do it again and again and and then it started expanding beyond then it was just historicals like we're okay we're just going to paint historical stuff but then there was a lot of guys saying well hey i like doing fantasy and sci-fi and and i said okay well let's open it up and then once we did that it just exploded right and um it's become like i said it's took on an energy of its own i i feel like i'm sort of a i feel like i'm just the curator of it it's kind of become something you know beyond me per se i just sort of kick it off and it kind of takes on an energy of itself it's really become a community hasn't it it has you know and and i've met so many um amazing people uh through it uh to the extent that when sarah and i do travel like when we we'd like to travel to europe whenever we can and it's it's wonderful going back and to europe and i you know because i i invariably end up meeting you know half a dozen of the people that uh that are part of the painting challenge and you know we have bloggers often well you know i'll try to coordinate it like the last i think not the last time but the you know recently we went and we went uh during the autumn and i went to um crisis in antwerp mm. you know, yeah which was fabulous and i've been to salute a few years and and each one of these events, the guys, uh, not just guys, but the, you know, these gals too, but the, the people that are involved in the challenge would say, hey, let's, let's get together for drinks and, and chat. And, uh, and that's great. And I've met guys for gaming uh, when I've been in the UK and in Europe. And yeah, and, and that's something that would never have happened without the, the painting challenge, uh, which, mm -hmm. uh, like I said, it just began from a very humble kind of very grassroots thing to now it's, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, it's grown beyond sort of whatever I would anticipate it being. Yeah. But uh, yeah, coming back to James's uh, question, it's it, the painting challenge is. Um, I always like to say it's not a competition. It's it's it truly is a challenge. It's just a. It's just uh, I ask people to say, hey, um, here's a matrix of what 
you know, I arbitrarily call points for figures. So a 28 millimeter figure is X points and a 54 millimeter is X plus whatever points. You tell me how much you think you can get done in three months. We're going to peg you at that. That's going to be your par. And, um, and then people can, you know, they, we kick off on uh, December 20th and it goes, we go the first day of winter to the last day of winter. Like it's basically <laughs> a way for me to get through winter, which I can't, you know, I, I can So, um, you know, for those three months, everybody just goes ballistic painting tons of minis, right? So, and everybody gets to post their stuff on the blog. And for a lot of people that don't have uh, blogs or maybe their blogs are not, get a, high, not a lot of high traffic, they love it because, you know, the, the centralized blog allows their stuff to be seen by a huge galaxy of people that now come to see what's going on with the, with the challenge. And so they get lots of great comments from people that they would normally, you know, get comments from. So, and coming back to, you know, James's con, you know, uh, note or comment before is that, you know, when you get feedback from people from different places in the world or from people that you admire, you've seen their their work and they come onto the blog and they say, Hey, I, I like what you're doing here. Like it, it's a great, it's a rush. Right. You know, and, and, you know, Mike, you, you've been a part of it and you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I have to say the the two times I participated in it, it was, it was um, not only really, really good for my own productivity, but it was um, it was eye opening in terms of seeing not only, you know, some really crack painters, um, like you mentioned, uh, Sydney, but also people who just, you know, sort of paint their heart out. Some people who are quite young or quite at the novice end. Yes. And to see them improving is, is very, very gratifying as well. It is. It's a very supportive, very, very supportive community. Yeah. And I think that's, I think you kind of hit, hit it right on the nail on the head there is that the community that the challenge has sort of grown over the years is one that's very, um, it's very uh, open and permissive and supportive. It's not like everybody gets that it's not a it's not a painting competition. This is about you know giving people good energy about their hobby and uh, like yeah. as you said, if it's somebody who's just new and they're just getting their feet wet with uh, with the hobby and and they're feeling you know you know you can tell they're 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 feeling a little bit of trepidation of putting their stuff out there. Yeah. And I always love the energy from people that, you know, they, there's nobody critiquing saying, oh, like, why, you know, why didn't you do dry brushing or you should do this for, you know, you do get that con constructive criticism for sure, but it's all sort of nested within a very constructive and nurturing environment. So, which I, yeah. which I really like. I've always hesitated because I figure I'll curse myself. I'll say, right, I'm going to do this and then life will get in the way. Yeah. And well, yeah. It happens to all of us. Derailed. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, and that's fine. We have that every, you know, that happens to everybody in every year. And I, uh, you know, I set my target, my, I have a, you know, I paint as well in the challenge and I, I set my personal targets and there's been a few where I, you know, this work got in the way, life got in the way and I couldn't make it, but it's still nice. Um, I know that even if I said, Oh, I'm going to paint X amount and I still don't get it. I, I still don't make that target. I still feel great that I, typically have end up painting more stuff than I would have if I was just left to my own devices, right? 
the the um, the other thing I like from the challenge is that it's uh, it's opening up like there's you know there's more there's more women that are getting involved in it. We're getting you know younger people. We're getting people from nations that I haven't been to, you know haven't seen before. We like we have some you know we've had Russian painters. We've had you know guys from Spain. We've had people from uh, from South Africa. From you know from uh, you know last year was from Greece. You know, and it's just, it's just wonderful. That reminds me, speaking of Spain, Benito Vera said to say, uh, hail the snow lord. <laughs> so he, he found out we were going to be talking to you tonight. Yeah, yeah, Benito is awesome. Yeah. He is a neat guy, yeah. His, his meals that he puts on Twitter always look really good. Yeah, I had, I, Sarah and I had the pleasure of, uh, of uh, linking up with Benito and his, his wonderful wife, uh, a few years ago when we, were at, when we were visiting Madrid. And he's, yeah, he's a marvelous guy. Nice. Yeah, he's promised uh, promised me a tour if I can make it over there. Yeah, um, it's spectacular. Yeah, and you mentioned the the woman getting involved. I think one of the things that I really admire about um, the challenge is that uh, the uh, your wife Sarah has a, a small role in it as well, right? Yeah, you're you're right. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yes, a few several years ago, well, it's actually quite a while now. Sarah uh, wanted to see more um, female figures being painted in the challenge. She follows it diligently she she really likes the hobby and enjoys sort of the craft of it but she was saying you know we need I would like to see more female subjects getting painted and um and I said well you know what, what do you want to do with that and she says well why don't we do something where it's like you know Sarah's choice or some sort of prize around that and so it grew from that where you know she now every year she has a Sarah's choice prize in which you know, she asks people to paint uh, female figures that, you know, as long as you put the tagline of Sarah's choice, then, uh, and then she, she, uh, you know, she has fun adjudicating that at the end of the, end of the challenge. And, uh, and it's been really embraced, you know, over the years. And, and we, and the good thing is, is we've seen a lot of amazing female figures that, uh, that go beyond the, you know, the, the babes and chain milk bikinis and stuff like that, because, you know, you, you quickly run out of gas with that type of subject and you have, you know, you have the, now you're seeing like the amazing stuff from like bad squid. Oh, the, you know, the, yeah. uh, the land, the land girls and like tremendously cool subjects with female, with a female perspective or interpretation. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. And as the, it's become a lot more, um, of a lift so you've, you've you've had to recruit some some minions or helpers as you call them right yeah for sure um when i first started it i did it was a one-man show i did everything um yeah. myself and then my work became more busy and then the challenge became more um ta you know not to say taxing but it just became a little bit more popular and more people were wanting to be a part of it uh -huh. and i could i just knew i couldn't keep up with it and so i you know some of the old sweats some of the grognards from the first few challenges I approached and said, can you, can you guys give me a hand here? And they were like, absolutely. You know, it's been, and in every year it's been fantastic. There's always people that step up to give me a hand on, on running it. And uh, to the extent now where really it's the, it's the group that, you know, we call it, we call them minions, but you know, they're a fantastic group of usually it's about five or six people that are day handling the day-to-day -day heavy lifting of the challenge and I'm, I'm mostly there just to get the, you know, set up the theme for the year and get the site ready to go and, you know, and just launch it on its way. Uh -huh. But uh, so it's really become like a, a community thing, right? It's, it's yeah. run by the run by a community uh -huh. and it's, you know, it's attended with it by a community. 
how many people in this year's version the, the 11 challenge 11 god i think you we think we were very god i think we were in the 90 you know in the high 90s um yeah. um yeah a lot of people i uh, i i remember back in the earlier years when it was around 40 people 50 people i uh, i have to say i kind of thinking i might try to trim it down um, once you get it to those higher numbers, it gets to be a lot of management. And you also find that people that are following the blog can't keep up because there's so many entries flowing in per day. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. Uh, when, but when you have about, you know, maybe, you know, between 50 and 70 people, then it's, it's far more manageable, but it's kind of one of those double-edged swords. Like it's kind of hard to trim back because people are like, you know, I'm, I'm already getting email in the middle of summer here saying, Hey, so what's going on, right? What's happening with the challenge? And I'm like, yeah. oh, Lord, like cool your jets, buddy. Like I don't do the announcement until, you know, November. So, um, yeah. and you know, Hey, I love, you know, it's great. It's great to complain about success. Right. But, uh, yeah. but I, uh, I think I wouldn't want to grow it any more than it is because it starts to lose its intimacy. Um, and it's, you know, uh, that engagement. Um, so yeah, it, it's great. It's great to be, it's great to have an energy and people want to be a part of it, but you're trying to manage that as well. Right. Yeah. I, I found the last time I, I actively tried to follow it. Um, my goal at the outset was to, was to comment on every single post and I very yeah. quickly found that was impossible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are, I can tell you, there's two guys in, in the community that did that this last year, they commented on everything. And I don't, you know, I, I don't, it's amazing. Like I, I, you know, I personally sent notes to them, thanking them for that because it's such a great, you know, when you're, when you paint your guts out and you're put out your figures, you really want somebody to say something. And, um, and, you know, these, these two sure. guys were there every day and not, not just a good job, Kurt, or, you know, it was like, Hey, I like how you did the eyes or I really like how the groundwork. Well, like they actually, it was really considered comments. And I was like, good Lord, like, you're a rock star. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's that's above and beyond. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, uh, it's it, I mean, I think it's a real gift to the uh, to the painting community and the gaming community, Kurt. And, and you know, you brought people together. Um, you see yourself doing this for the foreseeable future? Uh, you know, I thought you know when ten, when ten when challenge ten came up, I really was wondering whether I should hang up the bootstraps and call it. Yeah. You know, at that point. Um, I'm in my uh, I'm in my early 50s right now, and you know what? I just wasn't ready um, to stop. Then, the energy is still good. Um, I felt like I can still do this for a few more years. I love the community. I you know, so I thought you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going at it, and I don't know you know I don't know when um, when I'll stop. Um, you know, there'll be a time when I will, uh, for sure. And I hope maybe somebody else can step up. I'd love to see it continue, right? And whether it's, you know, whether it's the, you know, Sydney Roundwood's painting challenge or the, you know, somebody else's, uh, you know, I don't care. I don't, you know, I don't market it for analog hobbies or anything, I, you know, but I do like the, I, you know, I do like the whole idea of the challenge. And I, you know, it would be great to see somebody else, you know, take it on. Uh, when when I'm ready to sort of hang up my hang up my spurs, mm -hmm. well, I'm sure you could find uh, no end of of people who'd be willing to take up that torch. But yeah, yeah. yeah though there's there's certainly been a few that I think that uh, that could fill fill my shoes more than capably, you know, and take yeah. it maybe to the next level. Then when I when I was floating the idea that I might call it at 
challenge 10, I have to, you know, I want to share this. I, so I, I sent it out to a sort of a wide group of people that were sort of past helpers, you know, past minions. And, um, you know, and I got a, I got a comment from a fellow who uh, had served several tours, uh, both uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and said, you know, that, uh, you know, suffering from, um, you know, PTSD and, and saying, you know, I was pretty in a pretty dark space uh, when I came back, but the, uh, you know, the challenge really um, helped ground me again and get me back into, you know, wanting to be back in society and, you know, dealing with other people. And, uh, you know, it's wow. hard. To, yeah, it's awesome. even even now I get a bit reclimped about it because I, I was like, kind of, whoa, that's, that's uh, huge. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then when I heard that, I went, okay, I'm good. I can do this. <laughs> this few million years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, like uh, my, you know, my small, you know, ooh, I don't know if I can make the time for this, all of a sudden became kind of, um, kind of, I don't want to say inconsequential, but it put things in perspective, right? So that it, you know, that it, the, the event means more to some people than other people, you know, and I, and I get that, you know, and, but the fact that it meant, this much to this individual, it kind of, it really put me on my back foot. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. Yeah, we talked, uh, I think the last time in our last podcast about the connection between the hobby and uh, positive mental health. And, and, you know, there's just so many, so much evidence that it's a good thing for, for people, right? You know, that's way to go. Uh, oh, I had one more question. Um, a little bit of charity that you do at the, the tail end of it that involves uh, a local animal shelter in Regina. Do you still do that? Yeah, I uh, try to do um, try to do work with local. Um, Sarah and I are big animal um, uh, advocates, and uh, yeah, so I like to I like to do stuff like that. And I'll be do, you know I'll be bringing that back again uh, in in future in future challenges for sure. Um, I, yeah, I often do try to do things yeah. with, um, for human beings. We often, you know, we, we take care of ourselves, but I like try to figure out something that where it's for, uh, or for, uh, causes that not necessarily are as high profile. Yeah. That's so cool. Thanks for doing that. So I think we've kind of covered the, the painting challenge. Uh, I wanted to maybe just ask you a little bit about what makes you tick. I mean, if I had to choose a word. <laughs> describe your your blog uh, eclectic would be one that would come to mind i mean i went back through a couple of months of it and uh you've obviously caught a bug for a game called moonstone yeah um which looks like this most amazing little fantasy game Maybe you can tell us about that in a minute but it also goes to a whole variety of different scales like 10 10 millimeter lord of the rings that's a project of yours Right. It's just yeah. something that James, that's a Middle Earth is dear to James and I uh, as well. And um, two million written Napoleonics. Gosh, what else have you been doing lately? I mean, what, what, uh, what's driving you right now? What's, what's making you, what's making you happy? Yeah. Right now I have to say, uh, I, yeah, I, last year I went through actually two, almost two years now. I went, I decided I would read the entire, well, as much as I could anyway, uh, the entire Tolkien Uh, so I was you know I started right at the beginning and you know read everything as that I could get my hands on for Tolkien and I just felt you know and I I it it, it is great I just fell in love with it all over again that you know the whole the whole Middle Earth um, world 
world and it just it was a big you know of course I, you know, I'm in my 50s so it was a big nostalgia trip of my first time of reading that as a teenager and and I it really sparked a whole um, you know kind of a renaissance feeling for me for fantasy and so I really enjoyed you know I, I picked up a bunch of uh, Mark Copplestone's 10 millimeter stuff um, oh yes Those which are I, you know which I love they're just amazing and uh and I picked up uh, War of the Ring, which is a sort of an older set of GW rules that was sort of their mass. It was very, um, not, not very high on the radar screen. It didn't last that long, but it's a really actually good set of rules for mass combat set in the Middle Earth setting. And uh, it's, of course, it's designed for the 28 mil um, scale, uh, but I always, you know, me being me, I always think I can do something better or different or, you know, something that appeals to me. And I, 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 what really, you know, when I looked at the cavalry basing, I went like, ugh, that looks too weak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it just looked too thin and uh, on the ground. And I went, you know, I think, well, I wonder what, what this would look like in 10 mil. And then, so then I, you know, of course I got a hold of war bases and said, Hey, can you send me some, you know, kind of came up with some base dimensions that could be manageable. And uh, so, yeah, I, I did some experimental um, bases for, War of the Ring in 10 mil, and which I really loved it because it gave that, you know, I love the whole mass of that scale that, yeah. you know, six mil, 10 mil, two mil, that you're not worrying about facings or detail. It's more about the spectacle of the mass, right? And tell us about Moonstone. It looks incredibly quirky. It is. Uh, yeah, I found that I just kind of came across Moonstone um, again when I was looking, uh, I was just doing a, a blogging or not blogging, uh, doing some Googling on 3D sculptors. And then I came across these guys that were sculpting or doing 3D sculpts for this game called Moonstone out of the UK. And it's uh, it's been a largely a Kickstarter funded system. Um, in, that's based in a sort of a grim, you know, when I say grim, G-R-I double M, like grim fairy tale right. uh, environment. And it it also has that, um, I'm trying to remember the name of, you know, that book in the 70s or was it late 70s, the, you know, the fairy book that I think, was it Loud? I can't remember that, or Froud, uh, who did all of the fairy uh, yes. illustrations oh yes, yes, those yes. illustrations mm -hmm. yeah and and uh and so the the figures are similar like in in feeling to that sort of very sentimental fantastical look sort of like uh del toro's labyrinth uh you know mm -hmm. uh jim henson's work with uh you know with uh, dark crystal yeah and i just went you know this is fabulous it's much more gentle approach to fantasy than you would see necessarily like with Warhammer or some of the more dark grim visions of fantasy this was this kind of takes you back into a more gentler more whimsical spot and I went you know what that's exactly what I need right now that's that's great you know and we're in the middle of COVID and I was like I need something I need something light you know and uh and, uh, and then on top of that, the rules are spectacular. Like they're great. Uh, you only need uh, like a, you know, a, a side, a faction only needs three to six models. And then you're, you're, off, you're off to the races. And uh, of course the models are not cheap. They're fairly expensive, but when you compare them to what it takes to get into any game system, you know, um, it's, I still think it's very, um, very manageable. And the, the models are beautiful. They're fun to, fun to paint. 
And uh, yeah, and uh, Sarah, you know, Sarah saw it, uh, my wife, Sarah, and she said, oh, you know, this faction, I love this faction. So I bought models for that and painted them up. And so we've had, we've actually had games with Sarah playing. She, you know, she enjoys the game, which is, you know, that's a pretty good litmus test for, for me is uh -huh. when I can have some female gamers um, that can get um, into, into these type of, into these types of games because um, they're a little bit more whimsical and funny. Uh, the, the, you know, the special abilities are very humorous. And uh, the other thing I loved about it is that there's no point values for the figures. So it's just like, oh, I, you have a three figure game, you bring out whatever three figures you have. That's, that's cool. And yeah, and, um, and I like the, the fact that typically it only lasts four turns, right? Uh, four turns and the game's done. So for uh, for people like who have a lower, lowish attention span, like my wife, uh, you know, I can pitch. Oh, four turns. Okay, I can get my head wrapped in four turns, right? And uh, so that to me, that's that's very attractive. So I thought that was very clever of the game designers uh, pitching, pitching their system uh, along those lines. So yeah, so I've been really having a great time working on on those minis, and so those guys have been benefiting from my credit card uh, a lot over the past few months. Yeah, and so it's mostly a role-playing game. No, it's a, it's a figure pure figure game. Uh, what happens is that uh, you have these moonstones that uh, are emerge uh, that can only be seen at night. That sort of emerge in in the ground. It's very similar to Mordheim, if you remember back in the GW days when we had Mordheim, uh, where you had warp stones, I think it was called. And then, but yeah, with the moonstones. And so you have factions that are going out trying to grab because they're they're precious. Uh, they're a precious commodity and you, you it's kind of neat because the mechanic is is you basically hold a, a handful like of seven d4s over the table you let the you let it go and whatever number that the that the d4 has one to four that tells you the depth of the of where the moonstone is buried at and so then you have these factions scurrying about trying to uncover, dig up these moonstones from you know whatever depth level they're at, and they're fighting with each other because the game is one in which it's not about how many models you've killed or defeated; it's about whoever has the most moonstones wins, right? And it's uh, it's a you know it's a very cool, very simple mechanic, and uh, it makes for oh. you know fast and frenetic gaming. Sounds enchanting. Yeah, yeah over on your blog, looking at scrolling through your moonstone figures, they're, they're quite humorous. Yeah, they're they're kind of mental. They're kind of wacky, and uh, and of course each figure yeah. has its own. They all each figure has its own card with its special abilities, and so they're all each figure is unique on the things that they they can do. And you know, there's there's one with a goblin on a on a on a on a pug with a lance, and it, yes, it's ridiculous. <laughs> And it's, he, he's called Doug the Flatulent. So I'll just leave it from there, what, what his special ability is, right? So, you know, you, you have these kinds of really silly, silly things going on in the game. And uh, it's, it's a nice antidote from playing, you know, hard, you know, I love Chain of Command and I, I love Napoleonics, you know, yeah. uh, General to the Brigade and uh, really love Blucher, like really crunchy, hardcore gaming, figure gaming. But I also, you know, I enjoy these games too. So uh, yeah, it's, a nice, it's a nice answer. Goblin riding the farting pug can go do something. Yeah, you know, that's, <laughs> it maybe speaks to my infantile sense of humor, but it, it, it ticks off a lot of boxes for me. I wonder too, as we get older, if, you know, there's a certain exhaustion with the kind of the warfare and the grim dark future kind of stuff. I, my son uh, asked me to paint some Badgers and Burroughs figures for him. And, 
I haven't enjoyed painting figures more in a long time. Yeah. You know, the idea well, of a, like a, an otter wielding a, a like a lance connect otter. That just works for me. Right? That's awesome. And, and I so love I'm, I'm toying with the idea of... I, I love what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, it's just it, it, like the, relaxing. The, uh, the turnip, you've seen like the turnip uh, miniatures, the guy that's doing... Those uh, are mental. Like, isn't that crazy? It is. I, I, I followed it for a while on Facebook and it was like, what? Yeah. yeah. You, know, I, I, you know, I don't know whether I'd be necessarily getting into it, but I still love it. Like I love the creativity behind it. And I love yeah. the fact that he's mashing together all of these different periods into making these miniatures. And I think, hey, that's that. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. It, it's 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 like I don't know um, some kind of bizarre fever dream painting yeah. by what Hieronymus Bosch, maybe. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. They're just like they're they're amazing figures. I don't know what the hell the game would be like, but I think it's like. By the time they finally get around to playing the game, it'll just be kind of like, eh, well, we did that. Yeah, and I, I kind of appreciate his, uh, his approach of, it's sort of a, yeah, I would say test of concept, but it's just something he's exploring as a, you know, almost like an artistic endeavor, you know, and, and a few, like a few years ago, I did, uh, I did a project where I did World War One and just using grayscale, you know, and, oh, right. and, and, and that was driven purely, I just wanted to try it. Like I had seen some of the really talented guys on their blogs try and get grayscale. And I thought, you know what, I wonder, I wonder if I could do something based on the theme of the Great War, where I just kept it to like similar to the photography, like the sepia tones yeah. of, of the Great War. And, you know, I burned out doing it. Like I painted a ton of stuff for it. Um, probably, you know, I have enough to paint or to play, but I still, I still love that, you know, when I look, come across it in my game cabinet and I look at it, I went, oh, wow, that was a lot of fun to work on because it was just a, it was an intellectual exercise of how to work within a gray palette or a sepia tone palette, oh. right? So when I see guys like this that are doing this crazy turnip stuff or Moonstone, I go, yeah, I totally understand where they're going with this, this whole idea of, you know, letting your creative mind run wild, right? I don't I know about turnip. So I'm, I'm frantically Googling right now. Tell, tell me where <laughs> oh, I you're, you're, it's good. You're going to go down a very bizarre rabbit hole there, my friend. I found something called Gardens of Hecate, turnip 28, which is unpleasant. Maybe that's the wrong turn. Anyway, you'll have to, you'll have to tutor me later. I'm, I'm not sure I should uh, know about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll enjoy it, Mike. Okay. So, Kurt, we call this the Canadian Wargamer podcast, which could be glossed in a number of ways. I mean, it could just sure. be gamers who are happen to be Canadians. Yes. But it also, I mean, what we're trying to do is is trying to show um, showcase our own little corner of the hobby. Sure, and sure. I guess I wanted to ask you, what Canadiana subjects attract you as a, as a gamer or as a painter? I know in the past you did some really nice uh, Ortona stuff. Yeah, I think I would, you know, I would, that's what I would probably talk about. Uh, right now for sure is uh, yeah several years ago I uh, I think it was when you know when chain of command you know the two flat, fat lardies rule set was sort of the, the the new shiny and everybody was uh, doing you know the typical I almost say that makes it sound integrated but they were doing you know Normandy and you know the the, the main campaign areas 
and uh, which, hey, I, you know, I love, I love that. It's, that's great. Uh, I really enjoy those uh, environments, those campaign environments. But I, uh, I wanted to do something entirely different. And I thought, you know what? You don't see a lot of stuff about the Canadian campaigns uh, uh, in, in, in Italy and in Sicily. And so I thought, you know what? Let's, let's do something like that. And, uh, and I was really, I've always been taken with, uh, I think, Anthony Barton's work with uh, AB Miniatures, oh, um, the 20, his 20 mil stuff, and because it's just gorgeous. And I'm always, a, I've always been a big fan of the 20 mil scale for World War II way back to, you know, back in the day when 20, when 20 millimeter used to be, that was the scale for World War II, you know, yes. yeah. before 28s took over. But I, I still love the 20 millimeter or 172nd, 176 scale, you know, uh, for World War II, because it's odd, because you can you have all of these kits and like it's all there, the plastics, it's all it's lovely, and uh, I find the ranges work better to my you know to my lizard sense and so my lizard brain. When I look at stuff on the table, I find twenty millimeters you know one step better than better quotes unquote uh, than twenty eight because the the you know the ranges seem a little bit more acceptable to me you know. But uh, anyway, coming back to it, yeah, I, uh, I thought, you know, Anthony Barton does these wonderful Commonwealth figures um, and German figures. And so I, uh, I jumped in with both feet and started uh, doing, um, you know, Ortona, which, you know, for a lot of us Canadians, we know what that's about. It's, uh, you know, it's the battle for the, the town of Ortona in, I think, what, 1943? I could be wrong, guys. Uh, I think it's 43. Yeah, winter uh, of 43. Yeah, you know, right around Christmas time, I think. Actually, I think they celebrated Christmas in Ortona. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, you know, I I went down the rabbit hole doing all the research for it, and I just, you know, fell in love with, uh, you know, you'll have to. Is it Zulki? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Zulki's work on uh, on the Battle of Ortona. You know, love that book. Um, and there were so many great vignettes, the historical like. You know, I'd read a passage and I'm like, oh man, I gotta paint something for that passage. You know, and there was that. You know, in, in his book, there's the there's these three brothers from uh, Trois Rivières that are part of that that tank regiment, the you know Three River Tank Regiment, and it's just unbelievable that you could have these three brothers all in the same, you know tank unit all fighting in the same like it's in, like the mother must have just been losing her mind, right? The the yeah. You know, um, you know, this is Saving Private Ryan kind of stuff here, right? And uh, and that really captured my imagination. So, you know, I had to do three tanks for for these three brothers. And I, you know, I, I there was another story about this, you know, six pounder anti-tank um, gun that was out on one of the piers shooting into the into the town. And there was this, you know, there was this guy that would in basic training. He was just one of these guys that just couldn't take to basic training, you know, just just, you know, mechanically couldn't, you know, couldn't shoot, couldn't march. And so they said, guess what? You're a cook, right? You're, you know, we're, we're, we're going to make you a cook. And, uh, but there he was in Ortona. He, you know, whatever happened, he drifted out of the mess tent and he want, he walked up to the six pounder gun and said, I can, sh I can shovel shells into this thing or help load. And that's what he did. And he guy, he he was stone deaf at the end, you know, with blood coming out of both of his burst eardrums, but happier than a clam that he could do something. Okay. And you know, and that when I read that, I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta paint a, I gotta paint a six pounder for for Ortona, you know, because and it looks very good. I was just looking at it on your blog. I like the oh, base. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah, those are great vignettes. Yeah, I remember them well.
yeah and so that's you know that's always what drives me i'm i'm a complete uh, hobby squirrel uh i'm often driven by you know i'm often driven just by when i read stuff i went oh man i want to paint that and then guys say well what wh what use is that in the game and i said well who cares like it's it's it looks, i don't care if it's any use in the game i just want to paint something like that so yeah yeah yeah, yeah stuff um, like that brings a table alive yeah yeah i i think so too yeah, just paint it and shoehorn it into some game. Doesn't exactly. Matter. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And, with, and with games like Chain of Command, it's like, well, it's it's my deployment point. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right, James. So it yeah. actually does fill a function other than just being table pretty. But uh, yeah, no, I'm often driven by, you know, I'll see a scene in a movie or I'll see, a, I'll read a passage in a book and I go, oh, I, I need to do a vignette or a piece for that because it just appeals to my like i said my lizard brain just kind of gets perked up and goes oh yeah yeah let's 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 figure this out how can we do this yeah james and i i think in our first podcast we talked a lot about the canadians in italy and, and what an amazing story that is right from yeah you know from the the novices sort of slogging their way over the mountains of sicily because all their transport got sunk yeah to, to an yeah. entire armored division you know being at the top of its game by the end of the war right yeah for sure uh, yeah. yeah, and how these guys learned, you know, very much the hard school of hard knocks of how to do house to house fighting, right? And yeah, you know, the whole, you know, using mouse holing, you know, like how to, you know, how to blow holes through the side walls and yeah. you know, going from the top, going from top to bottom, yeah. you know, all these things that, you know, when you, you know, read about, you know, SEAL Team Six and all of the modern, you know, special forces operators, like all of this stuff was learned in World War II by young 19 year olds that, didn't know what the hell was going on and they they figured it out right uh -huh. yeah. against some pretty tough opposition absolutely yeah yeah for sure for, yeah, that's such a great story and it's not a not a i don't think as well known a story as it could be so anything yeah. we can do to tell that story in our games i think is great we are we as canadians we often sort of um hide our history and our our stories under sort of a bushel, you know, and uh, it's a natural, I, I find it very endearing. I, you know, as a, as a national quality or quietness, yeah. but every once in a while, it is nice to hear some of these stories being told, you know? Yeah, for sure. Tell us a little bit about the, the your gaming scene. So um, I know a couple of the folks in Regina that thanks to your introduction. So, you know, Peter Douglas. And, yes. Um, what, what sort of gaming scene have you got in uh, Regina? It's, uh, it's great. Um, I came from a very vibrant uh, gaming scene in Winnipeg where I was based before and uh, Winnipeg, or sorry, in Regina here, we, uh, we have a, a really eclectic group. Uh, there's about six of us that get together every Friday uh, for gaming. Uh, and we, yeah, it's soup to nuts. We play everything from cardboard, you know, Call of Cthulhu style games from, you know, fan, fa fantasy flight games to, you know, very crunchy, you know, um, figure, you know, classic old school, pushing Spartans around, pushing Napoleonics around. You know, we do, we do, we do it all. And we try to be as, uh, you know, uh, for, forcibly democratic, in a, like I say, is that, you know, okay, you're on for, you know, you're on for next week's game. What are we doing? And, you know, so, you know, Peter will say, okay, we're going to, we're going to roll out with, uh, you know, the uh, Reconquista in Spain and, and then another fellow will say, okay, uh, you know, I want to do naval, naval gaming, World War II naval gaming, or age of sail naval gaming. And then, you know, then, you know, I'll, and so we have this, you know, we, this um, cycle of, you know, I don't know how many game systems, like God, you know, dozens of things that we, we that will get onto the table. 
and it's great. It's just a wonderful way for a bunch of guys that are, you know, in their later careers to blow off steam after a long work, work week, you know? So yeah, it's fabulous. It's, and it's great too, to make one person responsible for, for putting on the game, right? Yeah. No, Rather than hoping that Bill will bring his Austrians. And, yeah. You know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've been in environments in which you're sort of uh, you and maybe another a couple of guys are always sort of the master of ceremonies. Yeah. Always putting on games, you know, uh, and it's great. Like I love, you know, I love putting on games, but uh, putting on 50 some games per year, like where you're always, you know, yeah the guy doing the games it, it, it sometimes can get a bit wearisome so it's it's and, and it's when and what's really irksome is when is when some of the club members start complaining about why aren't we playing it's like nobody's volunteering to run a game here yeah. so we're like if it's me running the game then we're going to play what i want to play yeah you, if you want to play something different i'm always asking who wants to do something yeah no. yeah and it's it is it's fun because uh i know you have guys that will say, oh, I really would like to play this. And I say, hey, great. You you set up the scenario. I'll help with the terrain or whatever minis you yeah. may need if I have it. Uh, I'd love to have you come out and put it put it on for us. And uh, it's, it's funny because often you'll have these guys that, you know, they haven't done it or they've done it very infrequently. And then they go, oh, wow, there's a lot involved to, put, <laughs> to putting, on, putting on a game. And you're like, yeah, you know, uh, there, there is it. Once you do it, uh, once you do it once or twice, it becomes kind of old hat to putting yeah. on a game. Yeah. But uh, there is, there is certainly with figure games, you know, like when you're, like when I put on a Napoleonic game, I really expect the guys to show up to play, <laughs> to play Napoleonic. Yes. Yeah, because when you schlep out several hundred minis onto a table with all of the train and you get all the sheets and cards and all the stuff ready to roll and two people show up out of your group of six or whatever it can it can kind of burn right because yeah you go, okay yeah. guys you know I, yeah yeah I, I want a full house tonight because I, I just spent three hours setting this up <laughs> yeah and, and one of those guys his head isn't really in the game yeah you're always like you know are you here or what like, yeah. it's your no. trick come on let's go yeah. pay attention <laughs> yeah. but uh, at the same time I love I love hanging out with my friends uh, i wouldn't change it for the world and so if only you know one or two show up i'm still gonna have a ball um so yeah and maybe that's coming back to your comment uh, mike about you know maybe it's because of be a little bit more advancing years um when you're in your 20s and 30s you think you're gonna have you're, you're gonna have thousands of games ahead of you but when you get into your later uh, later years, you're going, oh, I, I think we're kind of running on the clock here. I want to make sure that I have as much fun as possible with every time we get out. So that's true. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I always really appreciate any time that the guys come out to uh, to have a game because it's always lovely to see them. And there's nothing there's nothing that beats tabletop gaming, whether it's you know card games or miniature games. There's nothing that beats sitting around a table with a bunch of your friends and having a having a bunch of laughs playing a game like yeah. it's, it's the best is there a uh, like a, a an annual event or like a regional event in your part of canada kurt um they're in saskatoon in the past they've had um um i'm trying to remember what it's called there the name i want to say something like FragCon or something like that uh which i've gone to a couple times the one that i quite enjoy is prairie con out of brandon manitoba okay which is actually an excellent uh, little convention. Uh, 
when I say little, it's still fairly, fairly well attended. Several hundred people for sure are out for that. Nice. And, and it's, uh, you know, and it's soup to nuts, role players uh, to, to guys that are pushing around Napoleonics or World War II miniatures and stuff. So I, I really like the energy of something like that. And when, and I, what I really enjoy in the past, I'd say this in the past, and you'd say, you probably agree with me, it's in the past 10 or 15 years, like, the amount of women that are playing certainly in board games, right? Um, like the whole board game scene has really introduced generation of gamers, of players. And uh, it's wonderful to see young people and lots of, lots of women out playing, which I think is a really great moderating factor uh, to, you know, what, it, you know, the classic, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, where, you know, it was like, you know, it was very, testosterone-based gaming, right? Oh, goodness, uh, yes. A lot, of, uh, a lot of unwashed male bodies with yeah, uh, very yeah. poor social skills. Yeah, as a friend of my, uh, Taz, Tamsin, who's a friend of ours from the challenge, would say, this is turning too much into a sausage fest, you know? And yes, I, yes, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, just as a little segue, um, or side note, I was delighted to discover Tamsin's part of this crazy uh, podcast uh, that this one guy uh, in the UK from they're based out of London. He calls himself uh, Mad Axman. That's right. Yeah, but it's 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 a hoot. I mean, I I it's just totally bonkers. Yeah. And it makes ancients gaming sound like a lot of fun, which is something I I've, I've never <laughs> never done. Yeah. I, but I you know, as a wargaming vicar, I've often thought, you know, I should have a biblical army. Like I should have Hebrews and Philistines or something yeah. like that. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm actually amazed, Mike, that you don't have that. That's. Uh, I know, it's just, uh, I, it's, I think I've just kind of decided, you know, life is short, uh, or I'm further along in the checkout lane than I was a while ago, and I need to focus on my priorities, but you never know when I'm properly retired. Little BBA armies. Yeah, and that, that's sort of exactly what that group does, that group that Tamsin's part of, but it's all point-based, right? Yeah. So you can have Philistines squaring off against... Um, you know, like uh, Gundian Ordnance Corps. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. I, and I've always thought of you as a learned Philistine. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank <laughs> you. What time? What time of year is PrairieCon, Kurt? What what month? Uh, that is a June event. Uh, okay. Early, usually early June. Uh, yeah. Really missing it this past uh, two years, but uh, yeah. I'm hoping next year that it's going to be back on track. And is there somebody there that we should talk to? Like, uh, is there a ringleader? Uh, you know what? I can find out for you and let you know. I, uh, okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm not hooked up with the uh, the guys that are in the know, but I'll I'll let you know. Yeah, because that's something we'd like to sh we like to try to. That's one of our goals for the podcast is to shine a light on various events and sure, tell people about them for sure. Kurt, you've been uh, so generous with your time. This has been such a, a pleasure to catch up with you. One of the things that we ask, uh, and I've totally stolen this from Sean Clark, are starting a little virtual library uh, for Canadian pod. Uh, Wargamer podcast. So the books that we were, obviously we're just collecting titles. They can ideally have a Canadian connection or a military history connection or a gaming connection or just something that you love to read. Sure. We, have to, if we had to ask you for one or two titles sure. to deposit in our library, what would they be? Can I can I give you more than two or my limited? Of course. Two? Okay, we, good. We might stop you at 10. Okay, no, I got, I have five. How's that? Okay, that's great. We'll give yeah. you your own shelf. I, uh, I, uh, I, yeah, I was thinking about this today and I really had a hard time keeping it down to two. So I'm going to rattle through five. Okay. I can't okay. wait to hear them. Go ahead. Okay. Here you go. So, uh, all right. So first one I have, uh, I came across this last year. Uh, it's by Frederick Lodgeval. 
Um, and it's called Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and the Making of America's Vietnam. And it, it's, it's essentially about the French Indochina War in the, uh, in, in the early, it basically starts in, in, actually it starts from the French involvement in Indochina in the uh, Napoleonic period and takes it to you know 1954 with of course Diem Diem Phu, the fall of Diem Diem Phu and the ejection of the French out of Indochina, out of Vietnam, and then how that impacted America's involvement, like how America got drawn into this region and it became, you know, such an epic uh, conundrum for, you know, the American experience. And anybody, I always think anybody that, if you're interested in Vietnam and you think about Apocalypse Now and the classic, you know, Huey's over the Delta, you, you really are doing yourself a disservice by not setting it within the context of what the Vietnamese people had already go, gone through before, you know, say 1968, the fact that, you know, they'd been already been fighting a war for almost a decade before that time, right? Oh. Uh, you know, so I found, I found this book to be fabulous, just to set up that, 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 you know, that premise of, you know, how did America get drawn into this war? And, you know, what were the stakes for both sides, both the Vietnamese and for the Americans? Uh, so that's one. And then the uh, another one that I really enjoyed this past year was Craig Simmons' uh, World War II at Sea, A Global History. Okay. Huge book, uh, wow. huge book. Um, I'll say right now, I, I, I technically don't read these books. Uh, I listen to them. I'm a big audiobook nerd. Oh, okay. Because I love listening to books when I'm painting. So all, pretty much all of these books uh, were audiobooks for me. Uh, but the funny, funny thing is, is I'm such a book nerd that if I love the audiobook, I, I will typically go out and buy the physical book because I just, I still like the tactile, you know, I like having the book around because I, it reminds me of a great, a great read. But anyway, uh, so yeah, so Craig Simmons, The World War II at Sea, a great naval history that's about the entire Second World War. So as you can, huge, but it's, uh, it's a great, a great monograph about the tremendous losses that were experienced at sea, which often we, you know, naval gaming isn't a big component of our hobby. You know, it's uh, it's typically not as big as the ground war. So uh, I found it really, yeah, living in the middle of the prairies, you know, I, I'm attracted to stuff about, you know, naval stuff. I find it kind of right. fascinating. Uh, another book that I loved uh, uh, in a period that I've been painting with too is, uh, the Great Siege of Malta, uh, 1565. And uh, Tim Wilcox wrote this book called The Religion. Oh. And uh, it's fiction, but you know, very good historical fiction, fabulous story, uh, really recommend it. Sorry, uh, was, the, was that the Turkish Siege of Malta? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Ottoman, the Ottoman, the Ottoman Siege of Malta. Right. And um, yeah. And then uh, another one that I really enjoyed is Christopher Buckley's The Relic Master set in the Renaissance. And it's, it's a very funny, uh, again, novel, uh, you know, funny book about uh, this character that um, that basically, quote unquote, finds uh, religious relics. Uh, for patrons, um, oh, and, and so it's it really it's a send up of the Catholic Church, and it's it's right. but it's really done in a very gentle, funny way, 
and uh, it you know it involves a trio of crazy lanchnecks and you know and it's you know it's it's everything that's for, if anybody loves the Renaissance period you'll get it yeah. and it, it, it's it's basically about sort of like an art heist with the Shroud of Turin is sort of <laughs> sounds amazing yeah so. <laughs> I really recommend it. Great book, great read. Uh, Christopher Buckley, The Relic Masters. And then my last one, this is my Canadian content one, is uh, Joyce, uh, uh, Joseph Boyden's Three Day Road. Um, oh, very good, yes. Yeah, uh, set in the Great War, yeah. uh, which is, a, again, a piece of fiction, but it's, you know, if anybody knows their Canadian history with snipers, uh, we know that there were many amazing Aboriginal snipers, uh, and this is sort of a, uh, you can tell he's, he's He's talking about uh, one particular one from our history uh, that uh, served in the war, and uh, yeah, and it's a it's sort of a almost kind of a magic realism uh, approach to yeah. the Great War. It's very existential and very thoughtful. I think very you know respectful and sensitive. Um, also heartbreaking. It's and very, very, yeah, very yeah. yeah, and suitably heartbreaking as you should yeah. expect yeah. for the Great War. And yeah, I I really loved that book. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. That. It's interesting that you should finish with Boyden because our first guest on the podcast um, was uh, Bob Merch. I love Bob. He's awesome. And yeah. we talked a lot uh, about Bob's interest in um, Canadian First Nations. Yes. And Bob's uh, Flint and Feather range is unbelievable. And, and he, his, uh, one of his two books was um, Boyden's The Arenda. Yes. Fabulous book. Yeah. 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 And, and it's funny uh, you mentioned that because I ordered a whole raft load of uh, Bob's figures from was it crucible crush i think yeah, yeah. His age. Uh, so i hope to engage with those this next painting challenge so i'm, I'm really because they're as you say they're they're the spectacular miniatures so they are yeah and it, it led us to a very tantalizing discussion about a, a skirmish game from um you know like the lancel meadows uh part of canadian history with uh you know viking settlers uh, yes you know running up against uh very unhappy <laughs> Yeah, Canadian indigenous warriors, right? Yeah. My, my my money would be on the Canadians in that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, that's great. Home, home team, home team advantage. Home team. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's Curtis. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Yeah. So please, uh, please give my regards to the lovely Sarah, and uh, try to get yourself to a hot lead next year. Yeah, I absolutely will. I really yeah. look forward to uh, meeting with you guys and hanging out, maybe even pushing some minis around. That'd be fun. Well, that would be great. Yeah, we could, yeah, uh, yeah. if you could tie that into a slightly longer stay in our part of Ontario, uh, Joy and I would be happy to show you some wine country. That would be lovely. And in, the, uh, in the interim over this winter, if you guys have the uh, inclination, please send me a note if you want to join the painting challenge. Love to have you out. I think you should push James this year because his his output is uh, dwarfing mine. But that'd be well, you know, it's not it's it's not about output, but well, you know, as, as Stalin says, you know, uh, quality as a quantity, all of us. That's right. How many divisions? Oh, no, sorry, the other way around. Pardon me. That's right. Yeah. Or as he also said, the Pope. How many divisions does the Pope have? <laughs> exactly. Or he's got a boat. Thanks, so Thanks so much, Kurt. We're going to let you go. Thanks a bunch. Right. You guys okay. take care. Kurt. We'll give you a shout when uh, I'll, I'll I'll drop you an email when this. Thing goes live we'll probably when you've edited back. it down to like two minutes right no i don't think so <laughs> probably next week i would think okay cheers mate all right well that was our review with kurt campbell you know james i like to think very good friend of his i like to think of kurt as the sydney roundwood of the canadian wargaming scene he's well yeah like i mean what an eclectic uh like what an eclectic 
gaming group. You don't you don't meet too many groups that you know will do big battle Napoleonics one week and then you know something as whimsical as Moonstone the next. Yeah, yeah. You know, most people exactly. kind of stay in much more much more narrow lanes. Yep. Whereas he's he's sort of all over the place, which is which is kind of cool. I mean, I, I I respect that. I don't know. I have trouble finding my sense of whimsy, which always throws me off with things like VSF and, and, and such, because I just keep going, but it won't work. That Zeppelin's too heavy. It'll crash. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So just suspending that, that uh, disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's being able to suspend the disbelief just to play the stupid game and have some fun, which, you know, like the, the um, very serious minded little boy in me, who didn't get, I, I did not get satire. I, you know, everybody else my age was loving the A-team and, and laughing at it and going, well, that's silly. I totally did not get Xena. I mean, I, I you know, missed some very formative childhood uh, somethings. Yeah, yeah. That's, where I, that's where I always am. <laughs> Kurt's very well-traveled, too, geographically, too. It's interesting to hear him talk about meeting other people in the hobby, like going to Lard Island and hanging out yeah. with, um, going to salute and um, meeting uh, people like Benito Vera in Madrid. He's extremely well-traveled. He knows a lot of people and he knows a lot of those people through his uh, hobby challenge. Mm -hmm. It was really gracious of him to invite us to think about it next and week. I would just be worried that I would, um, it would actually Im impact my productivity. Like life would get, it would just be that curse that life would get in the way. And I mean, we're hoping with cadets to be back to face-to-face -face training. So, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be unfortunately busy again next winter. And I'm not going to be, you know, getting all this painting done that I am right now. Yes. Yeah. And speaking of cadets, that leads us to our Canadian content corner. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. Tenth July, tenth July, as a, an alumni of the Royal Canadian Regiment, is of course Pacino Day. It's yes. the, the beginning of Operation Husky. One of the things that I really would like to recommend to our listeners, if you're interested in Operation Husky, is to listen to the interview that um, Brad Saint Croix, also known as in his Twitter account on this day in Canadian military history, had a really, really great discussion on Operation Husky with um, a historian called Alex Fitzgerald Black, who's uh, a historian of air power in World War II. Really interesting <laughs> conversation. I didn't know, James, that uh, the Canadian uh, Army got into Sicily really almost at the last moment, that they kind of begged and pleaded, and the British I think it was probably Alexander, who was the senior commander, said, fine, we'll chop a British division. 
and we'll put, <laughs> we'll put First Canadian Division in. And originally, the story that the the interview with uh, between Brad and Alex says is that the First Canadian Division was given a what was thought to be a fairly minor role uh, in the operation, but uh, turned out to at least in the first week, it turned out to be a fairly significant role given the opportunity to envelop the significant portion of the German defenders, which didn't quite mm -hmm. happen in part because uh, First Division had to walk a lot of the way. Yeah, know, all, all our transport getting sunk on those ships. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I learned about the, from uh, that conversation was that uh, the Canadians did not have a lot of opportunity just because of where they trained, which was mostly in Scotland, um, to work on combined arms. So they didn't have an a lot of opportunity to work with uh, air elements or to work with artillery um, practice, you know, creeping barrages and stuff. So they ended up working a lot on their infantry tactics. And one of the things that came out in that conversation was the field craft of the Canadian Army, Canadian infantry in Sicily was impressed everybody, including the Germans. The Germans said, you know, the Canadians are pretty good at this. And it wasn't until it wasn't until uh, halfway through the campaign that the Germans smartened up a bit. So I didn't know any of that. That was interesting. Oh, well, it was in, um, it's in uh, Farley Mowat's The Regiment, where uh, the Hasty Peas make their big attack up, um, oh, whatever mountain. Basically yeah. by scaling what was considered an impassable cliff face. Yes. Yeah. I should and, know that. That's some typically done. Yeah. And the um and you know, basically the the artillery observer won the battle for them. Was that Leon Forte? I, yes, I think it was. Yeah. Unless Leon Forte was the ridge. Oh, I can't remember now. Yeah, um, but yeah, they got up there and, and basically the hasty peas protected the 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 artillery observer as he just called down every gun he could bring into range on all the Germans he could see. Yes. And yes. Uh, the German, the Germans thought they were like specially trained mountain troops. Kaborg <laughs> Jäger, yikes. Yeah, which, which made them feel quite pleased with themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we're just a bunch of boys from, uh, you know, Prince Edward County with a goat. Not a lot of mountains in Prince Edward County, Ontario. No, it's pretty flat, I believe. It is, yeah. Good wine country. Yeah. One of the things that came out in that conversation was that Farley Mowat was actually the, uh, the Hastings and Prince Edward Regimental uh, historian. Like he was keeping the war diary. So one of the reasons why the, the regiment's account is really well known is partly because of Farley Mowat then and after the war and publicizing it. So yeah, and, and you know what's really neat is okay. if you read if you read the regiment, which is a much more you know, sort of official third person history of of the Hasty Peas. Right. I mean, it does get it does get kind of emotional where he talks about you know, like five thousand men went through the regiment in the in the um, two years that they're in Italy. Right. Uh, but then if you if you if you then read and no bird sang, which mm -hmm. is is much more personal um, experiences of the same of same events. So you sort of read them in tandem, and it's very it's it's very interesting. Yeah, that would be a great uh, great project. Maybe that'll be one of my reading projects for the summer. We read both those books. Yeah, I recommend it. You got to if you can do Sicily. Absolutely. Uh, those guys are next on my painting queue. Uh, they're fighting with uh, Prussians right now, the Prussian musketeers. But I think they'll uh, they'll get a oh, shot at the Prussians. Well, uh, yeah, let's see. I don't know. Prussian musketeers are kind of fun. They are. They're uh, they're dead smart for sure. Yours are six millimeter though, so. 
No, I have uh, I have a bunch of front rank Russians. They are so sexy. Front rank Russian musketeers with sexy back. Sexy back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nice. Yeah. For your seven years war. Yeah, seven years war. Well, they'll go with my Russians. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So just finishing uh, the Canadian content stuff before we 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 move on. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, Alex Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald Black is online tonight. Uh, he's doing another webinar for the Laurier Center for Military and Disarmament Studies Maple Leaf Roots series. He's talking about uh, air support in Normandy and how the Canadian soldier perceived air support, which mm. I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be a YouTube publication soon, and we'll uh, we'll make a note of that when it appears. Cool. One of the things that Alex was saying was that air support worked a lot differently in Sicily from when it did where it did in Normandy. In Normandy, we have this idea of, you know, just sort of endless cab ranks of typhoons waiting to blow something up. Well, they had them. Uh, yeah. In Sicily, the air support was much more sort of programmed into the battle at the operational level. It wasn't, you know, just some uh, yeah. company or uh, commander saying, hey, I'd like some like some bombs dropped on these guys. Yeah, you, so, didn't have, you didn't have the air control officers driving around up at the front. Um, no, no. Calling, calling people. Not as much, no. And the other thing that he points out, which I didn't really know, is that uh, a significant uh, number of RCAF personnel and you know Canadian airmen assigned to uh, Commonwealth Air Forces, um, significant number of casualties uh, were in the Italian campaign. You know, the hmm. Germans had a significant amount of flack when they were trying to evacuate their people from across the Straits of Messina. And, um, yeah. You know, the Allies paid pretty dearly to try to interdict that. So a lot of Canadian, a lot of Canadian air personnel involved in that campaign. That's the Canadian content corner, pretty much. The webinar series. By Laurie, I really encourage people to listen to that. The The other one that I, I heard recently was uh, Lee Windsor, who's a uh, another Canadian historian. He's at the University of New Brunswick. He gave a talk a couple of weeks ago called The View from Point 67, which was about the Canadian Army in the second half of the Normandy campaign. You know, the fighting through up to the Falaise Gap. And oh. he's done a lot of battlefield tours. Um, in the last uh, decade or so and he says you know a lot of canadians don't know anything about those battles they, they no. know a lot about uh, juno beach but yeah they kind of think that you know juno beach was a hard part like oh it was just sort of the beginning of the hard part really the other thing that i thought both these guys pointed out in, the, in both these interviews uh alex fitzgerald black and lee windsor was that a lot of these operations were designed to to get the Germans mobile. So, you know, the Germans in Sicily and in Normandy were really, really good at digging in. They were heavily camouflaged, the, and they were hard to kill. So, the whole point of um, the whole point of an operation and the payoff for an operation wasn't just taking ground, but it was actually creating pressure so that the Germans would actually have to start moving troops around. You know, whether they would uh, have to reinforce certain points in their line or whether you would force them to counterattack. And that was right. the point. Lee Windsor says when you kill them, you, know, you could get, you could see them in the open. You could get the artillery, you could get the tanks, you could get the infantry firepower on them. And that's when, yeah, that was the whole point of these operations, really. That makes sense. Yeah, and it kind of makes me wonder how you duplicate that on the table, really, because you know a lot of our tabletop operations really focus on capturing objectives, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you give, even if you give the 
defending player something where he has to move instead of just sitting sitting behind a ridge. Yeah, something to think about for sure. So our next subject, Bavarians. Why are Bavarians so sexy? Oh, Ever, well. Why, you is know, it, why are everyone talking about Bavarians suddenly? It, that is, it is kind of funny, eh? Like I, I seem to have, I, I've started a thing. You have. It's all your fault. I, I, I started this painting. I'm the cause of this painting challenge on Twitter, apparently, uh-huh. which, you know, really, really appeals to my ego. <laughs> um, I'm going to have trouble. I'm going to have trouble fitting my, you know, fitting my hats on soon yeah well bavarians are sexy because of the ruppenhelms right right you know which and the are corn, just and the cornflower blue depending on who you read uh yeah well i mean google google cornflowers and there's quite the range of shades so right. um, but yeah they they you know they they got that bright blue which is different from everybody else on the table They've got the Ruppenhelms, which are like the coolest Napoleonic headgear ever. It's hard uh, to well, think of anything that matches that. Except for the hats that the Danes wore, which are kind of like a top a, a top hat that had been turned into, you know, militariness. Yeah. Um, or maybe the Polish Chapka. Is that how uh, you pronounce it? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But it just makes me think of a bunch of students. You know, they should have academic robes on or something. Um, <laughs> going to graduation. Yeah. But... Uh, no, and the other the other sexy thing is that it turns out my ancestors came from Bavaria. No kidding. Yeah, because I was reading the Osprey um, book on Bavarians, which is really kind of disappointing. They spend an awful lot of time on the Bavarian army before they even got involved in the wars. Like two, three color plates. Um, they waste a couple of color plates on units that were formed after you know and didn't take part even in 1815 um not that the bavarians did a lot in 1815 maybe they besieged a couple of fortresses or something but uh yeah so i but you know looking at one of these things and it's like oh you know this is a guy from this regiment and the uh you know that at the time they gave the regiments the name of their inhaber their, Sorry, uh, their, that, that's their commander right yeah their proprietary colonel in chief name his name was Vol, which is the name i was born with really and uh yeah and so so i asked my brother who had done the um you know did the did the uh mouth swab and send it in to the ancestry.ca people and yeah and he, and he said yeah our, you know half a fam you know half of our family tree came from bavaria and the other half came from you know england and scotland came over That's just before cool. just around the civil war like a lot of Bavarians did, um, there must have been something going on economically or politically that they're all fleeing, fleeing the continent. Or maybe just because um, they didn't like Prussians. Well, yeah, there was the growing fear of Prussian encroachment, right? Right. Although they, 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 hadn't, been, they hadn't been absorbed into the Reich yet. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen until um, I think 1866. Anyway, uh, yeah, so they came over and somewhere in um, like Wisconsin, uh-huh. Somewhere near, like in the you know Midwest, the Civil War broke out, and they said, "Well, load the wagons. We're heading north to Canada," and they settled in settled in um, around uh, Kitchener. There you go, with a whole lot of other German Canadians. Yeah, it was like a whole bunch of others. Yeah, back when it was called Berlin. Yeah, well, I should probably go yeah. to Oktoberfest or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess two Bavarians uh, are sexy because they fight for both sides, right? After we talked about this, I think previously. Perfect army. Yeah. Before before eighteen twelve, they're French allies. After eighteen twelve, they're French enemies. After eighteen thirteen. Right. Right. For the Leipzig, they switched sides just before Leipzig. Right. Right. So actually, even at the Battle of Leipzig, there were some Bavarian troops on the French side because they hadn't got the memo yet. They were like, you know, working in the working in the wagon parks and stuff. Yeah, that must be confusing. Were their tactics primarily uh, French? Like, were they were they trained in the French style? You know, as, far, as, sort of as far as I can tell, um, by yeah, by about eighteen eleven. They were pretty thoroughly Frenchified, if right. that, if one can, if they, you know, they, they had the two, two flank companies and, and all that. I mean, there were a few little differences. They had uh, rifle armed Schutzes. Yes. You, know, you have some of those that you're currently painting, right? I just glued them to their, to their bases while we, uh, while we were talking here. Right. So and they are Scharf, Scharf's Jaegers? Scharf's Schutzen. Sharks shoots. I, I need to figure out what what the German German version of uh, of Sergeant Harper would be. <laughs> get them get them a couple of big men. Uh, but you know they are they are elite as all get out. Um, they're going to be in all my battles. Elite as all get out. They they are they like they are so sexy. They're they're front rank figures and mm-hmm. you know the like the, the de- like the details there you just can't help yourself. So I've done the piping around the plackets and the mm-hmm. collars and all the buttons and you know I've I've highlighted normally I just highlight the jackets right right uh, I've highlighted jackets pants backpack bedroll uh, the 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 comb on top of their helmet the plumes at the side of their helmets you know give a nice little link wash to the musket stocks like um it doesn't matter the game that they are gonna they're gonna show up in our dragon rampant games they're gonna show up like if i play 40k they're gonna be there <laughs> like they're gonna be in all my games now like, okay you know it's like could be the chicago way and 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 capone's gonna be like what the fuck are these guys in the helmets doing here <laughs> yes exactly so, yeah sauron going what what are these guys oh they just, just shot me in the eye oh yeah that's the only eye I have. Yeah, I've only got the one. Jeez. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. I look forward to seeing them on the table. I have some six millimeter, six millimeter Bavarians, and I hope to get some more uh, from uh, my favorite supplier, Bacchus. Mm. The last time mm. we did one of these podcasts, you were waiting for your front rank order, and uh, I was waiting for my Bacchus order. Your front rank order arrived. And I've painted it. I've painted over half of it now. <laughs> yeah, I have, I'm still watching the mailbox for my Bacchus order. So. Oh dear. Yeah, I'm gonna. Have, Peter uh, at Bacchus promised me a replacement, but I told him just wait till the end of July, buddy. It's okay. Yeah. That'll mean I'll probably have to order some more. Oh, because I have to be part of this Bavarian challenge. I can't sit that one out for sure. Well, yeah, you can't because you know there's there's beer involved, and you're the have, you're the bigger beer drinker than me. There is beer involved. Is there beer involved in pretzels? Pretzels with mustard. I think if you're if you're doing Bavarians, you have to do it. Oh, like I'm I'm gonna have to drink a beer oh. at some some point with these Bavarians. I'll just have to like give in and drink a beer. Wunderbar. Okay, so we've answered the question. Bavarians are they sexy? The answer is yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, gross and sexy. Gross and sexy. 
Did you and Elizabeth watch that uh, German series Dark on Netflix? Uh, German series which? It was called Dark. It's a science fiction thing about time travel. Uh, dark? Yeah, Dark. It's on Netflix. I highly encourage you to watch it. Okay. And I encourage, um, you, encourage you to watch it with the uh, German. Um, so watch the English subtitles, but what, listen to the German. Yeah. yeah. And you can learn all sorts of useful phrases like... Uh, um, mein Zeitapparat. Uh, where's what was the Ikabagalosen mein Zeitapparat? I've lost my my time machine. Oh uh, my goodness! Yes, that could be important. Useful phrase. Well, especially if those Bavarians are going to go back and forth in time. Well, you know, and just you, you, you know, you, you, you travel to Europe and you just blurt that out at you know some tourist information booth. <laughs> Where's mein Zeitapparat? That was the phrase. Where is my time machine? Yeah. Where's mein Zeitapparat? Well, speaking of traveling, uh, you traveled um, virtually to Virtual Art. Virtual mm -hmm. Art 6, was it? Yes. Tell us about Virtual Art 6. Virtual Art 6 was two hoots and a holler. It was, it was definitely worth the price of admission, which was free. So there you go. Um, it's organized by, by a nice chap named Jeremy. Yeah, I, managed to get, I managed to get three games because with the time difference, um, only maniacs like Brian Hall sign up for morning session games because that means we have to get up at like three in the morning to play a game. Right, because it's all done out of the UK, right? Yeah, it's all UK stand. It's all UK time. So I was in I was in an afternoon session and they had an evening session this time. So I was in, played in both of those. Um, the morning session was hosted by um, Johan, who I. Th believe he said he was near Cardiff, so Wales, mm -hmm. and I was playing with a um, U.S. Air Force chap in Virginia named Zachary. Now we played his, um, it's soon to be published, a variation on sharp practice called Packing Heat. And it's, he, he started out as, a, he's trying to do sort of a universal skirmish game. Okay. Um, so he, he did screen share with us and showed us the, um, you know, showed us the layout proofs for the rules it goes from you know prohibition era gangster game which is what we were playing world war ii so you can have like a couple of squads fighting over farmhouse to um you know D dea agents versus drug cartels or you know spies and security guys or whatever mm. um and it's very much it's based on it's, it's a variation on sharp practice you know as, as he said it's like you know it's the sort of first lardy game where there aren't big men but that's because everybody's a big man Okay. Right. Okay. Um, you could basically just use your sharp practice cards and chits. You know, assign the assign the big man cards to your your characters, and or I guess if you're if you're running a bunch of low level mooks, you know, or say alien insects to fight your colonial marines, um, <laughs> you know, a card to a swarm, right? Or a bunch of cannon fodder. And rules for like prison riots, civilian, very extensive rules for civilians, which really impressed me. Yeah, you were talking about that a bit uh, when we talked with Bob Merch, right? About uh, well, civilians on the table. Yeah, because like in so many of these like urban-based games, like the civilians, I mean, if you're lucky, civilians are there, and but they just kind of like get out of the way, and after a couple of turns of them running around, they're just kind of gone. Or he's got much more, you know, the civilians might interact and do things, and yeah, you, know, you might have someone try and be a hero and take on the bad guy, and yeah, he's not going to succeed, but he might cause some problems so that was neat i i was very impressed with 
what I saw and how it played. Um, it was just a nice little bunch of gangsters hiding out in a farmhouse and then attacked by by federal agents who were trying to rescue their their undercover guy who had been captured. You had a great write-up on your blog of that. Ah, thank you. Yes. It sounded it sounded really bloody. Was there is there any shock in this, or is it just people getting popped in the head and dying? Uh no, there is shock. You are you are accruing shock, um, which I kind of tried to imply. So actually, it, it is actually kind of hard to kill somebody. Okay. <laughs> it took a while before people started dying. Um, a lot of the federal agents that disappeared from the game were because they accrued too much shock and they and they ran away. Okay. Your blog write-up sounded very Quentin Tarantino-ish. It was a oh good, <laughs> and then um, yeah, and then in the afternoon it was a game hosted by a nice fellow in Virginia, and as my opponent was in Scotland, so he was he was on the he was in the evening, uh -huh. whereas you know for me it was for the host and I it was just the afternoon, um, but he had he is doing a uh, chain of command refight of. The assault on um, the Braycourt Manor battery, yes, which is in the Band of Brothers episode "Day of Days," right? And it was it moved very fast, which was pretty cool. Even though I was derping over how the rules worked, I was getting a little confused with been Chop Mom and various other things. Oh. Uh, so you know, my my opponent was my, and I, I I was the Americans in this and 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 on the offensive first, and he, he said I was wondering why you're slow walking your assault. And it was I wasn't really deliberately doing it, but it worked out because oh. then once I got everybody into position, I had rolled uh, double sixes, so I had the next phase. So then I just launched my assault on two gun pits. You know, they threw in grenades. Um, piled a bunch of shock and and then jumped in and these poor shocked or German artillerists are facing very um, angry American paratroopers, wow. but it didn't go well for them. And then, yeah, we're done in like an hour, hour, hour and a half. And so we switched sides and I ran the battery and he attacked me. His Actually, his tactics were very similar to mine. You know, we both put, because you've got like your three leaders, you've got Compton, Lipton and, and, and Winters. And they've each got like only two, maybe three men with them. And then you've got like two 30 cal teams. And so we both put Lipton and a 30 cal at the, you know, in, this, in the same spot as a base of fire. And then we sent Compton and Winters in the same direction to start attacking the same gun pits. And we both sort of, okay, the Germans have this MG 42 nest. And it's like, right, that's the big threat. So just Lipton just suppresses the crap out of it. So I can't shoot at all. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and then it's just clearing clearing gun pits and, and uh, storming up the trench. Um, I was able to get my reinforcing. The Germans get like three sections of, um, of infantry as reinforcements. And I was able to get them on quicker than my opponent did when he was a German. So right. I managed to get half, you know, of course, and they, of course, walking across the field behind the battery they're exposed and they attract 30 cal fire so you know i shredded his when they showed up whereas i got i took a slightly different route and got half a section into the into the gun pit when winters attacked so then you know when all the dust cleared you know winter's team was was dead and he was surrounded by corpses so the and the, the objective was to reduce the german force morale to zero before they fired 25 rounds out of the howitzers right and do the so, germans have a chance to win we're 
yeah, we're in the post game discussion. We were kind of thinking that maybe he should. He's gonna next time he plays, he's gonna bump the German force morale up okay. and reduce the number of rounds after firing their fire mission. So it becomes much more of a race for for the Americans. But, it sounds like an amazing game, and I watched some of oh, the I watched some of that model coming together, like the uh, you know the dugout models. Uh, the, yeah, it, it was a lot of work went into that for sure. Mm-hmm. Did, was that level of detail visible when you're playing it virtually? Sadly, no, no, because it was just top top down camera view, yeah. um, which you know and and. Um, you know, there's that thing going around about you know hints for virtual gaming, and the and the one and the fellow writing it was saying how he he always has a camera on him, mm-hmm. so you can see your game host. And I noticed with the with the Breakcourt Manor game, I really missed that because he just had the and actually even my game in the morning, um, they both kept themselves out of the picture. In the in the packing heat game, he had two cameras, so one was fixed top down, and the other when he moved around. And in the Braycourt Manor game, it was just a fixed top-down view, and sometimes this, you know, we saw his head come into view, and but never saw his face, which was, you know, kind of disappointing. Nice, just nice to engage with the human, right? You know? um, and yeah, and sadly, you can't see the uh, the level of detail. Mm-hmm. So, but he's going to bring it to Historicon in November at at Valley Forge. So, if you're listening and you're going to go like check it out at least to ogle the table he's he says he's he might make a lipton tree with like lipton up in a tree being a sniper which was an option we had but neither one of us opted to do it although i'm kind of thinking you know probably would have been smart yeah um you know shoot some shoot some gunners uh yeah so it was fun it was, it was a good time i didn't stick around for the um for the post game uh you know there's like virtual pub where we can just kind of hang out and chat but until we had, I'd had enough of virtual interaction. So right. And that's I, all on Discord, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. The pub is all on Discord. Like he, uh, the the initial communication is all through Discord too. That's where you find out what games are going to be run. That's where you register. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, he, he gives you a form. Um, when it's registration day, he releases a form, and you select your five choices. You say which time slots are available. And you select your five choices and you submit it. And then he, I guess it's first come first serve and priorities and all that. And he figures out and then, and then in a couple of days he releases, okay, this is your game assignments. And you go, hooray, I got, you know, like, I think I got my second or third choice and my fifth. You got two games. Oh, I, got, I actually got three games because we played the one game twice. Oh, that's right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was pretty cool. And then, yeah, and then once you, you know, and then he sets up, you know, it's sort a of private Discord channel for the game master and the people, people playing. And then that's where the, um, and that's where you get things like your pre-game briefings. And then, you know, the game master sends out whatever, like both games were played over Zoom. And that worked pretty well? Yeah. Will there be a virtual arts zone? Uh, Jeremy doesn't think this year. So, because he says work's getting busy. Yeah. Um, he, he warned that this would be the last one for the year. So who knows? But you know, next year. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I definitely recommend getting in on it. Yeah, I must make a concerted effort to get involved in it. I'd love to check it out. Yeah. Well, thanks for that report. I'm really interested in packing heat. Is that going to be a uh, like a two fat lardies product, or is it? Yes. Going to publish it independently. No, it's going to be a two fat lardies product. 
it like it looked pretty finished it, mm -hmm. it, it looked very close to to being ready yeah so um i would i would ex you know expect sometime in that you know within the year or by easter yeah. you know all our games are going to be released by easter so but yeah i can i can see it replacing both black ops and rogue stars for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm not sure it's, it's going to totally replace the chicago way because right. i can i can run bigger you know games for like 10 crazy people yeah with the chicago way i wouldn't be able to do it with packing heat right but with packing heat i think i could run you know just sort of a you know head-to-head -head game and you could get very sort of you know here's your two hero buddy cops from you know uh bad boys or whatever right and they're you know you know the big shootout in the warehouse taking down the the you know the drug lord and his minions you could play something like that with packing heat cool i could see possible applications to that to uh, some of my weird war uh, projects as well so yeah yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've looked at uh, the um call of cthulhu rules for the uh, combat system and honestly um they're beautiful rules but i find the the amount of effort to actually generate a character oh. And then to actually figure out the uh, combat uh, hurts my head. Oh dear, yeah, this is very. Um, I mean, you're familiar with sharp practice, so this will be very familiar to you. Mm -hmm. You know, the card. Okay, that's character number six instead of big man six, so he can he can he can activate, do his two actions, or he can do a group activation with people that are of lower rank than him. In which case, they can't then activate later on when their card comes up. But you know trade-offs and uh yeah and then you, you can move and shoot or shoot twice or move twice or exciting yeah and and it's you know very and like i said it's very fast moving like my my big problem with a lot of skirmish games is that they is they get really into the crunchy details yes yeah you know like how many rounds did you fire what did he have for lunch um <laughs> you know all that stuff and it's like oh or is this you know, like it's a skirmish? It's supposed to go fast. Yeah. And this game is taking forever. Years ago, I invested in a set of rules from a, a couple of guys in Ottawa called the Face of Battle. Did you ever see those? No. Um, they were individual rules, and it was you know you had to keep track of whether a figure was standing or kneeling or prone or running or jumping, or and you know you had yeah. to uh, keep track of who was reloading and it was it would have been a brilliant system if it maybe you were maneuvering two or three figures on the table but yeah it was a lot of work yeah yeah but, yeah Not, it's a, a slow moving skirmish but it was a canadian there was some canadian content there so we've we've highlighted a, a piece of canadiana wargaming the face of battle well thanks for that report and virtual art i look forward to trying that myself next year i hope there'll be virtual gaming post-covid i'm i think that's yeah everybody's everyone says it's here to stay yeah because i think people have kind of i know like brian's commented on on you know you can you can really you can do stuff with the medium that you can't do with face-to-face -face gaming you know, i can um i i helped them play test a game for virtual large five patrol boat action and channel oh yes right mtvs versus e-boats and it was at night. And so Keith and I said, well, turn the lights off. And he well, said, you're sure? And we said, yeah, turn the lights off. And so we, all we had was just the glow of his white blinds. 
And then when, and he had these little tea lights and LED lights for when things were on fire or when there was like gun flashes and stuff. Right. And it was like really cool because you were losing track of your own boats. Which would explain why there were so many friendly fire incidents, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, it was very atmospheric. It was like really created the fog of war. Lovely. And he, he likes, he likes pushing the envelope with that, with stuff like that. Yeah. Brian's very clever that way. I look forward to getting uh, Brian and his partner, Crime Keith, onto the podcast. Yeah, we'll have to. So we come to the part of the podcast where we talk about what we're doing, uh, what we're painting, and what we're reading. You are still painting Bavarians, I believe. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, well, I'm I'm basing my I'm basing my sexy sexy front rank uh, uh, Schutzen, and I've got some Perry Perry art, Bavarian artillery and Chevrolet on the go right now. Uh-huh. So I was trying. That's how I kind of, you know, people. Oh, how do you get stuff going so fast? It's like, well, like, well, the paint, paint or glue is drying on something with, you know, like a big step. Like, I like my, I like to let my primer dry for twenty four hours. Right. You know, and I like to let my my brown undercoat dry for twenty four hours. So, and while that's doing, I, I, you know, work on something else. I get something scraped or assembled, or you know, I'm. Or if I'm getting close to the end of something, then I go, right, it's, you know, I'm getting close to the end of these. So I've got some time. I'll, um, you know, prime up the next batch so they're ready to go. Very industrious. And you have, uh, so you have in your 20 millimeter project that you've been doing for Napoleonics, you've got Russians, you've got Bavarians, and you started off with French, right? Prussians. Prussians, sorry, Prussians. You have not, you didn't do any French. No, Scott Cameron has a he 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 literally has a core's worth of french like i'm i kid you not 24 figure battalions he's got the artillery reserve he's got the cavalry brigade he's got like three divisions of french infantry like six battalions per division and then he's he's just ordered the guard who's gonna have old middle and young mm-hmm. Um, and guard artillery, guard cavalry. He's got a heavy cavalry brigade. Like it's just, it's insane. You know, I was just going to uh, do some a little, yeah, like my sharp, sharp practice, right? You know, do some, do some Prussians, do do some Russians because I had the figures, and then I would get some, uh, you know, buy some secondhand French from Mikey to do a little force to fight them. Or in this, I did finally decided to do the do the Bavarians instead. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, uh, you could make them as opponents for sure for your Russians and Russians. Yeah. And then Scott decided, well, if you're doing, if you're going to do Napoleonics, I, I want Prussians to fight. So you know, <laughs> got me a couple of boxes of the plastic parries. Yeah. So there, there's a guy in the UK called uh, Ken Riley, the uh, Yorkshire gamer. Yes. He, he, does the, games. he does the big, ba- the big battles podcast. Oh, okay. I think he would like to talk to uh, Scott. He, yeah, Ken's not really uh, impressed by a game unless you've got like thirty-two man units and uh, or more, and oh. uh, you have a table that's like eight or nine feet long. Ah, um, uh, so he, I, I, you know, I kind of think. Like, I remember um, fellow in New Zealand talking about that. How, you know, he thought like you know, twelve. I think even maybe 24 figure units. He's a like, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a, you know, steamship with only one funnel. You know, he wanted like 36 figure battalions with, 
you know, both the, you know, regimental and, and national color and the flag party and supernumeraries and, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, that's great. It looks really cool. But it, but in game terms, it works exactly the same as a 12 figure battalion. That's true. And it takes up five times as much real estate. It's insane. You know, Scott bring Scott brought over his Napoleonics one time and he had like, yeah, 24 figure battalions. And his um, Austrians were like in, in 36 figures. And I was like, oh my God, like I've got, I've got a big table, um, bigger than most people. I don't want to brag, but you know, it pleases the gamers. Like it, it was crazy. He didn't even put out all, he, you know, of course we didn't put out all his stuff, but the, the traffic jam was terrible. So when I started doing my own, it's like, right, it's going to be four stands, 16 figures to a battalion. Right. And, um, you know, it looks, it looks, you know, you got two ranks. It looks a little, you know, it looks a little better than the, you know, the 12 figure battalions from the old empire rule. It doesn't take up the crazy amount of real estate that a, that a 24 or 36 figure battalion does. So it's just, I mean, it's, it's great if you can do it. Like I, I just look at the 36 figure battalion and go, well, I, I could have two maneuver units instead of one. Yeah, that's true. And then there's the time cost of painting them, right? Um, yeah. The, the expense, the expense of buying them. Yeah. And the time cost of playing the game too, right? Because the mm -hmm. larger the battle, I mean, the, the the people that Ken Riley talks to, I mean, their um, ideal is a weekend, right? So a lot of them uh, are familiar with things like the, uh, you know, the UK's War Games Holiday Center, for example. You oh, know, God, when, do you remember those days when we could spend a whole weekend <laughs> like playing a big ass game? Do you it's remember that? Did very vaguely, very vaguely, yeah. I know, don't. like. When, when the world was young and we had dinosaurs to help carry our figures into the hall, yeah. you know, our, our, our dice were all carved out of, out of um, mammoth bones. Yeah. Like I'm, I don't have the energy for that anymore. Like after, you know, after about three, four hours, uh, you know, a game that big, there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of noise. I'm done. Yes. I've, I've just had too much people. Yeah. When you've got like a, you know, a multiplayer game with like 12, players aside or six players aside the the din is is unbelievable right the noise is unbelievable and oh and there's, there's always one guy not paying attention and you yeah. know a yeah. bunch of guys are you know they're just yucking it up and it's like could be serious here you know i'm about to launch my great attack and you guys are like clowning around yeah <laughs> so much for the social aspect of the hobby <laughs> just screw you know, I want to be, I want to be social, but just God, people can drive you crazy sometimes. Yeah. Even yeah. your friends, you know, <laughs> well, that's true. You're going to cut that out, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> listening at this point. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to say that's one of the things that I, I like about uh, six miller, six millimeter gaming is that work at, I think right now my average is about 12 cavalry figures to a base and, 24 infantry figures but they're so teeny tiny mm -hmm. and you know i can call them a battalion or i can call them a brigade but the point is it's it's all uh the collective impact of the table right yeah so, you know if you want to get down there and squint and you can be impressed by the fact that 12 bases equals you know an entire core well then if, if you like that and you like the wee little terrain mixed in with it then good for you and if that's not your thing then it doesn't matter but 
you can fight a core uh, core on core action or an army on an army action within three to four hours and probably get a reasonable outcome which reminds me i um picked up the osprey rules absolute emperor okay and my hope is that they will be for us what uh, dragon rampant is for fantasy game um but they are osprey rules so they don't have a, a set of charts Hmm. Yeah, you can probably download them off the group. Well, I, I yeah, Other... that's a really good point. I need to see if there is a group and if somebody has done it. But there's a lot of there's a lot of, of digging to actually find out, for example, what you need to roll to kill things. But it does look very, very simple. Mm-hmm. The curious thing about them though is that they are, you know, he calls the average unit a division and he calls a grouping of, of units a core. And okay. so it seems to be kind of grand scale gaming. But then he has rules for units adopting different kinds of tactical formations, right? Lines, columns, squares. And I think Mm. it's kind of hard to square that circle for me, right? No pun intended. But if if you're talking about divisions on the table as your basic unit, then... Can you? How granular do you want to be with tactics? I don't quite understand that. I don't... Yeah, I think it's more sort of: are they being, you know, are they in an offense, offensive posture or defensive? Yeah, yeah. You know, that would be the probably the better way to put it. Maybe he's using you know column line square to keep that period flavor. Yeah, and that's that was my same pro- same problem I had with with Napoleon's battles. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like it's a brigade, so we don't have to worry about flanks. It's like but we're going to play it like it's a battalion mm-hmm. and worry about what formation it's in. Yeah. And then just the whole, you know, we don't worry about flanks. It's like, I'm sorry, if, if my brigade is projecting all of their, you know, combat power forwards, my brigade, my brigade is very vulnerable. Right. You know, and then a, a regiment of, of dragoons showing up on my flank is going to be very uncomfortable for me. Yes, that's a really good point. You know, so like I personally feel is that the bigger the formation, the more important flanks actually are. Uh You know, a fire team of four guys, they start getting flanked. It's like, well, gee, we're about, you know, they're getting uncomfortable and they want to fall back, but they can project their firepower pretty, pretty quickly in whatever direction the threat is. Yes, that's true. A core, no, no, they've got their artillery aimed in the, in the axis of attack that's where their supports are you know lined up for their lines of communication are very vulnerable you know anybody that says there are no flanks because it's a grand tactical game it's like no that's bullshit you are you you are you are you are making up waffle gab to cover up crappy game design hmm. because you didn't want to have to think about it yeah yeah i really like the idea of um is the a, a posture of offensive or defensive posture that's that's yeah, really just, interesting. just think of it that way instead of square versus line. Yeah, yeah. Are you attacking or are you are you uh, are you defending? Because if you're defending, then you're going to be in the the, the posture that, that makes the most sense. You're going to be using ground in the, the most advantageous way possible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll have your art your your battery sighted in such a way that they're you know differently than if you're making a grand battery to blow a hole going forwards. Yeah, that's all. Exactly. Glad to get out. Well, my goal is to get some of my six millimeter figures out and play test uh, Absolute Emperor and see if it's worth bringing it over to our next uh, Thundering Dice get together. Mm. So we've talked about painting. Um, I'm 
painting um, more Perry Brothers Canadian Intervention Force stuff. Oh, very good. Perry's are always nice. I have a bunch of commander figures almost done. And uh, chaps on horse, chaps on foot. And uh, I got some of those lovely Adolfo Ramos uh, flags. I'm using the his uh, Crimean War flags uh, for my um, Canadian and British infantry because... That's a good solution. Yeah, I think it's as close as anything, really. Canadian militia battalion probably wouldn't have any battle honors, but... No, you know, but who cares? Um, <laughs> Awards for drinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, best square dance of 1853. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there are... Um, I haven't found anything on what Canadian militia flags would have looked like. And I think the, you know, there's no sources that I've found ready to hand the Victorian, um, Victorian um, military Facebook group, which is mostly a bunch of Canadian reenactors, haven't been able to come up with anything that I've been able to find. So I think I may have to talk to some local county museums. We have in, here in Barrie, we have the Gray and Simcoe Foresters museum and it would be interesting to talk yeah. to them when they're open again and see if they know what flags might have been carried in the victorian period but i don't care crimean is good enough for me yeah yeah and then after that as i said it's a uh, going to be a struggle between 15 millimeter canadians in sicily which i could do quickly and cheaply because mm -hmm. uh, they're all basically tan with a little bit of a agrax earth wash yeah dirty hey you bang them out quick yeah, and then uh, as I said, my front rank Prussian musketeers, just because I hear the I hear the Seven Years War calling me again. I don't know where that came from, but that was one of the first. It's things the hats. It is the hats. It's all tricorns, man. It's all about the hats, man. You got a hat with three corners, a, a you know a hat with a groovy wool caterpillar on along the crest, like. Yeah, yeah. And you got a great grenadier miter. It's just very cool. Big thing of yeah. tin on front. And the bigger the hat, the cooler you are. Exactly, exactly. As your front rank Russian generals can well attest. That's right, because they have very big hats. <laughs> very big hats. Men with hats. James, okay, are, you finding, are you finding time to read anything? Uh, most of my... I, I waste way too much time on social media. Mm -hmm. um, but Wargaming Twitter is just so fun. It is the best Twitter. I Yeah, I'm, I'm reading the uh, A Soldier for Napoleon, the letters of Franz Hausmann of the 7th Bavarian Infantry. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's very cool. It was a um, neat, neat story, because like his, his father, like he was a lieutenant in the regiment. He started as like a boy cadet, mm -hmm. and his father was a sergeant major. So when his, um, you know, so he's keeping, you know, diaries of marches and everything, and then and his, his father got wounded at, in the 1809 campaign fighting the Austrians. So he was he, he was with the with the depot battalion training recruits, and so when his son Franz marched off to Russia in 1812, it was like write me write me detailed letters. I want to know how the regiment's doing. Mm -hmm. Like how I I I want to know you know how they're bivouacking, how they're getting fed, actions, everything. And his family kept his diaries and letters and passed them down. And and then his um, great granddaughter realized like holy crap, I've got this real treasure here i should maybe talk to somebody if they're interested and yeah and she talked to a historian and said oh yeah <laughs> he kind of sat up like a dog he's just been offered offered a steak and uh, yeah so they and then they padded it out with 
Um, you know, nice, nice little introduction about, you know, the, the army in general, you know, the reforms that happened just for the Napoleonic Wars and, you know, the basic strategic political situation before each, you know, section of diary entries and letters and things. And, yeah. Did, did the, he survive the war? He did. He, he survived all of the wars. I haven't got to Russia yet. Okay. But apparently he did not like talking about Russia. <laughs> not surprised. wonder why. Yeah. Um, he was one of the lucky few that got home. Yeah, he he uh, he, he left the army in 18, eight, like about 1815. He retired from active service and then, you know, fully just demobbed in 1818 and got a job in the civil service. Oh. And he was a favorite of King Max and he um, got promoted through the through the Bavarian civil service and uh, you know, when he died, he was quite, you know, quite a, he's a big guy and he's a big wheel in government. Quite important dude. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I look forward to, I look forward to reading that. Um, yeah. yeah. So speaking of uh, French soldiers uh, or well, soldiers in Napoleon's army, I've been working my way through a book called uh, Fighting for Napoleon French Soldiers Letters. Mm. 1799 to 18 I could be embarrassing myself. Anyway, they're, they're a depressing bunch of letters for the most part. It's like, dear mother, uh, dear father, I hate this. Uh, I'm hungry. I'm cold. I have no shoes. I lost all my kit. I need to buy more. Uh, yeah. dirty, dirty swine in the barracks stole my last two gold uh, Louis. So could you please send me some money? And P.S. I hate the war. Yeah. <laughs> and in the notes, because there's notes on every one of these letters. Uh, a lot of the poor guys just never, uh, you know, never made it home. They were killed in Spain or they were lost in Russia. And, mm. you know, it was not a lot of fun. And a lot of them well, were conscripts. Even at the time, like people, you know, like uh, sort of British British uh, political satirists were, you know, commenting on how, you know, Napoleon was just this ravening maw just eating French yeah. manhood, um, which by... You know, 1814, when uh, the Russian, the, the Prussians and Russians uh, marched into Paris. I mean, the, the Paris garrison did did try and hold out for for a couple of days, but they're outnumbered horribly. The Parisian population was lining the streets and hailing them as 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 uh, heroes and liberators. Yep. Yeah, they were. They had uh, a war. That's for sure. Tsar Alexander was uh, saluted as a, as a liberator of the world. Yeah, the liberator of Europe, which I guess is the world at the time. You know, so yeah, they were they were heartily sick of the war. Yeah, and, and Napoleon. I, th I think as, as long as Napoleon could keep the wars in, you know, Spain and Germany, they were okay. But as soon as the war came home, they went, "Hey, wait a minute, this <laughs> isn't fun anymore." We're no, it's not fun. Fickle. I don't fickle, think it was. Uh, I don't think it was ever a lot of fun for his rank and file. And, it, and it's funny. I used to be a bit of a a, a bit of a Bonapartist. It's hard to maintain a lot of affection for the guy when you realize that what, despite whatever brilliance he had as a young soldier, and he was undoubtedly brave in, in Italy, he was undoubtedly, you know, as a young officer, he was undoubtedly extremely audacious and mm -hmm. understood, understood campaigning better than probably anybody. But, you know, his, um, just the amount of misery and suffering that he inflicted upon his world makes it hard to sort of see him as, uh, as an admirable figure. Yeah, and all for his ego. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's not inconsiderable ego. 
and his habit of you know running his family like a kind of a 18th century Trump organization, right? With putting his uh, putting his family in. Another book I'm reading right now is uh, a book called The Iron Marshal, a biography of Louis Davu. It's one of Napoleon's mm. marshals. He and his wife did quite well under Napoleon. Yes. And um, he was one of the few who was loyal to him all through the all through the end of the empire. Not a lot of fun, Louis Davu. He was probably a pretty humorless guy, but um, by all accounts, uh, a brilliant soldier. But yeah, that's one of the I, one of the things I'm interested in is Napoleon's marshals because they're a fascinating bunch. Yeah, and you know they all tend to come from uh, slightly different backgrounds. Like some of them are aristocrats, like Davu, and some of them are you know more or less just like grunts who were in the right place at the right time. Yeah, some of them had very humble beginnings. Yeah, um, which was part of the you know part of the mystique. Yeah, you know, sure. every every French soldier has a marshal's baton in his backpack. They used to, yeah, they used to say, if you don't freeze to death in Russia, well, yeah, you know, you don't have long winter underwear in your backpack, but you might have a marshal's baton. Yeah, or if you don't, you don't get you don't get your throat cut by a Spanish guerrilla. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those letters talk about that too. I, you know, dear mother and father, I haven't heard from you for six months, but that may be because the mailmen keep getting killed. I hope yeah. this letter gets through to you. Well, James, we're coming to an end of episode three. So that was a great interview with Kurt Campbell. I thought you might be interested in some of our stats. I should have mentioned these earlier. Mm. But, uh, we have so far 312 downloads Ooh. from our two episodes. We have. Wow. Our first one did a little bit better. We had 170 downloads for our very first episode, 142 for our second. Yeah, is, 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 this, is this James guy ever going to paint anything other than the Polygonics? Jeez, what's wrong with him? Yeah. Anyway, like for I those three of you that are still listening, thank you very much. We yeah. are looking at another podcast in August as we work on a monthly schedule. And we're talking, we're planning to talk to a guy called Rene, and I don't know his last name, but Rene is the uh, organizer behind the Trumpeter Wargaming Group in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, is the organizer of the Trumpeter campaign, which Kurt, or not Kurt, um, Bob Merch told us is in the early part of the year. Kind of convention, the, Trumpeter yeah. convention. That's right. Sort of when uh, apple, when cherry blossoms are blooming in Vancouver. So that, yeah. Sounds like an interesting thing to go to. So yeah, we'll be talking to Renee and hearing all about gaming in uh, British Columbia. That should be an interesting podcast. So on behalf of James and myself, thanks so much for listening. This was rather a long one tonight. And as part of our Canadian Wargame podcast tradition, we're going to play out with a march or tune from one of the units or regiments of the Canadian Army. Finishing tonight is the march past of a unit that's very dear to James and myself, the march past of the Royal Canadian Regiment, which was very much present during Operation Husky. Okay.